1: This episode features Carly Davidson, who is an animal photographer. Uh, and before we get into my little rant here, I thought I would play a song from Orchestra Beobab, which is a really cool band who were famous in the 70s. I mean famous. They played in, I think they're in, from Senegal, and they, they were pretty popular in the capital, which I believe is Dhaka. And um, And then they sort of broke up and somehow their cassettes got out to Paris and they became like an underground cult favorite again and the surviving members got back together and recorded a couple of albums uh, recently, maybe 10, 15 years ago. Um, They're really interesting because what they specialize in is playing covers of Cuban music. So I think I may have played one of their songs on a previous episode or at least a piece of one. I'm going to I'm going to play a whole song here. El Son de Yama, I think this is called. And um so what they do is they play Cuban music that is based on African music, of course, as pretty much all Cuban music is. So you'll hear them. They're singing in Spanish. Those of you who speak Spanish will recognize they're singing in Spanish. But these are definitely not Cuban dudes. These are African dudes singing covers of Cuban songs, which are themselves cultural covers of African rhythms. And uh, it's fucking cool. And it's. Something that can only happen in the 21st century. So enjoy El Son de Yama. You'll hear that Carly and I are talking about this uh, music when the recording begins because we were just talking so much i i couldn't interrupt her to like say oh we're going to do a formal intro i just turned on the recording uh the machine and there you go so this one just takes off with a burst and i get to the intro about 10 or 15 minutes into it hope you enjoy this carly davidson look her up online her photography is fantastic and she's a really cool woman uh who i hope to get to know better when and if i get back to portland
0: Pablo, doña de mi villa, a mí mucho una mujer de mi alma, la más querida, me trajo a la perdida, caramba, tenga más pro saber ella. Maíz, son me va, caramba, ella maíz, son perdido. A la me quieres, amigo mío, y en la casa fui mentido. Vidalro, mis amigos. Solo mi madre lloraba. Ayas Pedrietro lloraba. este salvarra su amor. Hoy también acantelida canta raba en presiona y en una cama. Solo nuestra madre nos ama caramba. Ay vida tu eres Linda cualquiera mi son te llama y quiero gozar.
1: listeners world i'm sitting uh, in a sort of a tropical garden kind of place here next to the hotel we're staying at the buddy guest house if anybody's coming to chiang mai get a pretty decent double room for 550 baht which is about what about 13 dollars i think not bad. Yesterday, I had three massages. I had a Thai massage, uh, I had a foot massage, and then I had an oil massage. Three hours of massages yesterday. The massa- I'm not a big massage receiver. I'm more of a massage giver. Um, as some of you may know, I briefly had a a paying gig as a massage therapist for uh, fashion models, primarily lingerie models. Back in the day, back in my Barcelona days, I was living in a mansion where everybody who lived there was a fashion model except me, and I had studied massage in San Francisco years earlier, and someone, well, actually, the way it started was I was working with oncologists, and I mentioned to some of the oncologists how good massage was for increasing immune response and um, and uh, could sort of assist in dealing with inflammation and other things. And then um, I ended up offering to do some massage with some of the patients. So I set up a massage table at my apartment in this mansion where I lived with all the fashion models and then one day one of the fashion models came home and saw that i had this massage table and she said do you do massages and i said yeah and she said oh my god my back is so tight i've been standing you know in high heels in a swimming pool all day or whatever it was and um and can you like work on my back and I said, okay sure so she this woman her name was uh femka she was a dutch model absolutely beautiful woman and obviously and um Anyway, so I massaged her, and then other people heard about it, and next thing you know, I've got all these fashion models coming by for massages. And I didn't charge Femke for that first massage because I said to her, the rest of my life I'm going to be telling the story about how I had a paying gig, you know, massaging fashion models, and so I cannot in good faith charge you for this. I charged her for subsequent sessions, but not that first one. Anyway, uh, how the hell did I get off on that already? Massages, oh yeah. So I, I, I'm more comfortable giving them than receiving them. But uh, here in Thailand, it's a big thing. Like everywhere you go, it's massage, massage. Now some of them, of course, are happy ending massages. But we found a place that's um, uh, more sort of reputable. I guess the word is uh, they don't seem to do the happy ending. And the thing about the happy ending is, uh, you know, maybe there's a metaphor for life in general here, but it seems like, from what I've heard, if you go for the happy ending, first of all, it costs three or four or five times as much, and the women who do the happy ending thing don't actually know how to give massages. So you get a shitty sort of, you know, uh, just wiping your skin kind of massage and then a hand job and you know well that's i'm more interested in a good massage and no hand job so uh i ended up getting three massages yesterday it was pretty amazing and i'll probably get another one or two today thai massages are great it's like doing yoga it's like someone else doing yoga for you they're pushing your leg around and getting all these great stretches in your hips and your shoulders and all that. It's a very structural kind of massage. So um, I don't know whether it's true or not, but I'm convincing myself that lying there getting a Thai massage is counts as exercise. And uh, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. So, oh, by the way, for those of you thinking about traveling, I know a lot of people are sort of looking at, the possibility of coming to a place like Chiang Mai. A one-hour Thai massage costs 200 baht. And then, you know, another 50 baht tip. So you're looking at $7. Five euros for a one-hour serious massage. Pretty amazing. And a foot massage is even less than that. So, uh, yeah, for the cost of a beer less than a beer if you're drinking a micro brew in Portland um, you get a one hour Thai massage anywho uh, interesting here in Chiang Mai uh, I've run into a bunch of people uh, I get recognized on the street here it's weird it's really weird I mean it happened in Portland pretty regularly I sort of got used to it but I figured yeah there are a lot of people in Portland you know sort of the same demographic that would listen to this podcast but Strangely, here in Chiang Mai, it's happening a lot. It happened in Pai, which is a tiny little town up in the mountains north of here last week where we went up on motorcycles. A couple of people recognized us up there. And yesterday, I was sitting in the street market having lunch. And a couple guys rode by on a motorbike. And the guy in the back looked at me and he turned and he was like, what? He had this weird look on his face. And I could see him mouth the words, Chris Ryan. And I was like, yep, yep. And so he and his buddy pulled over and they, they ran down the street. And he's like, are you really Chris Ryan? Holy shit. So it's it's cool. It's interesting. He was from Denmark. And uh, and he actually said one of the reasons he was traveling was the influence of Duncan and Joe and me talking about getting out into the world and seeing things. He had just finished high school. He was a young guy. Uh, I don't remember his name. It was one of those strange Danish names. I, I can't remember. Um One syllable. Nice guy. If you're listening, you know who you are. Really cool. Running into you heading to uh, Malaysia and Indonesia, I think he said. So he's at the beginning of an interesting trip, Um, although it makes me feel strange like to be not not famous, you know, world famous or whatever, but to be recognized on the streets of obscure towns in northern Thailand um, makes me feel like I should be rich. How come I'm not rich? Right. If you're that famous, shouldn't you be rich too? Jesus? How did that work? How did I end up getting recognized in little towns and not be rich? Anyway, I remember talking to Andrew Weil about that, like one of the very first episodes of this podcast. And I asked him what uh, he felt had enriched his life more money or or fame. And he said that it was the fame, if I remember correctly. Um, Because he said that the money, you know, okay, so what? You get to hang out with rich people in fancy places, but lots of people have that. But that um, being famous got him invited into all sorts of experiences that money alone couldn't have bought him. So uh, I guess he's right about that. And I guess I should just be happy with whatever little sliver of fame I've got and stop whining about not being rich. I am rich. I'm rich in friendships and I'm rich in experience and I'm rich in the fact that there are tens of thousands of you out there who find this podcast worth listening to. So thank you for that. And uh, And then another guy I met yesterday, very sort of touching in a way, Cassie and I were having dinner on the same street, actually, and uh, started chatting with the guy sitting at the table next to us, really nice guy and uh as tends to happen for some reason uh he um he shared with us that he was an american guy dealing with uh a lot of the shame of having grown up in america he's from new england and a very sort of repressive you know um uh what's the word Not victorian the uh the puritan uh ethic that's still very strong in New England. And here he is in Thailand where sexuality is uh, definitely a a very different affair. And he was trying to wrap his head around that, around being with a Thai woman who's not a prostitute, who is just sort of happy to be with him and he doesn't understand why and he's got all these hang-ups. And and, uh, at one point he mentioned that he uh, was still trying to wrap his head around the trauma of his mother having found him masturbating when he was 11, 12 years old and she refused to look in his eyes after that he said that uh, before that happened he was an angel in her eyes and after that happened she could never even look him in the eye again guy's probably 40 years old he's still Still trying to recover from that. Pretty heavy. A lot of people are carrying around an awful lot of unnecessary weight because of the, the sad and dysfunctional way that we deal with sexuality in the United States and lots of other places. I'm sure there are a lot of Pakistani and Afghani and Indian, and, uh, people from all over the Arab world who are also dealing with a lot of uh, unnecessary shame. Judging from uh, the sorts of things that you see in the news, I think so much of the violence that happens, the people willing to strap on suicide bombs, you know, there's a lot of self-hatred and and, uh, I think shame and self-hatred are basically just two words for the same thing, right? Anyway, uh, I'm going to end it with this and just another thank you to those of you who support the podcast through Fund What You Love, fundwhatyoulove.com. Uh, Is a very cool site set up by Danny Osment, who also does sound engineering for the podcast when I give him a chance. Recently, I've just been throwing them up there on the Internet before he gets a chance to clean them up. So if the sound quality isn't up to our usual standards, don't blame Danny. It's all on me. Um and uh, anyway, FundWhatYouLove.com is a place where if you want to support the podcast, you can go there, enter your credit card one time, and it'll just uh, take a buck or five bucks or ten bucks or whatever you can afford monthly. Um, and then, of course, you can quit at any time. It's just a way to, to give the podcast a steady stream of funding without you having to think about it all the time. And the other way, of course, that people fund the podcast is through Amazon.com, the affiliate link that you find at Chris Ryan, PhD dot com my site easiest way to do that is just go to my site click on the amazon ad there in the banner and then uh bookmark the landing page on amazon and use that as your amazon page in the future and then everything you spend at amazon a uh, small chunk of that will go to support the podcast. So that's a great way to fund the podcast as well. As you know, those of you who are long term listeners, I gave up all advertising uh, maybe a, a year and a half ago. I don't know how long ago it was. Um, I just felt that it was kind of weird to be, you know, talking about increasing the quality of life uh, by. Using your money to buy yourself experiences rather than material objects and then throw in an ad for some material objects that you're really going to love. Anyway, just felt hucksterish and weird to me and uh, contradicted the, the main message of the podcast, which is life is something you live, not something you buy. So anyway, that's when we went to the all volunteer funding system and it's been great. Um, You know, those of you who can't afford it, don't worry about it. It's totally cool. Those of you who can't afford it, uh, we really appreciate your support. I'll end it there and uh, hope you're enjoying yourself wherever you are. I'm on my way. Cassie and I are on our way down south. Uh, By the time you hear this, we'll be on a little island near the southern tip of Burma. Uh, The island is called Kofayam, P-H-A-Y-A-M. So if you want to Google Earth that, that's where we are. Thanks for listening. Thanks for your support. Take it easy.
2: Um, Needs all this other stuff.
1: Do you Um, know um, Orchestra Baobab? Yeah. Uh, They're great.
2: Yeah, and, and like just allowing the stuff to take shape and now of course like world music just overlaps you know yeah. and everything overlaps and it's like oh yeah I'm gonna throw like this sitar in and you know whatever it, it's cool I, yeah. I never you know I grew up as like such a like punk rock rock and roll kid that
1: like a purist
2: a purist and it, it, you know if someone was like, "Yeah, you're gonna be super into like world music mm-hmm. in your 30s," I'd be like, "What? No." Yeah. And here I am,
1: just. But like- I mean, when I was a kid, there was no world music, you know, other than like you said, add a sitar. That was the Beatles who first did right, that, right? right. Throw that in. But there wasn't that concept of world music. There was no Peter Gabriel, like you know, bringing Yosun Dour to concerts in Paris and stuff. Right. Yeah. It
2: was more like, oh, that's folky. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, that's,
1: yeah. you know, foreign. What I love about Orchestra Baobab is that they're it's an African band. A lot of their stuff is doing covers of Cuban music,
2: which is also which is based on African, African music. yeah. So, so you have American based, like, African based on American, yeah. Cuban based, yeah. No, the Cuban like that's my um, my secret to mid-winter Pacific Northwest depression is basically throw out a bunch of like Afro Cuban, yeah, music, <laughs> and, like blast it really loud, and then all of a sudden like you you kind of you just, imagine that yeah, you're somewhere. You get tropical, not, yeah,
1: yeah. All right, I am here in the living room. Living, this is the living room. Sure. So you live here?
3: Whole house. This house. Yeah. Yeah.
1: This is great. This is. I used to live just down the street, Division and Thirty Six.
2: Yeah, I've been in this neighborhood for man, ten years.
1: Ten years. Yeah. You've seen some changes. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. I used to jog right past this house.
2: There used to be bars on the windows, in this. When I bought this house, there were bars on the windows, and there was really? a meth dealer living next door. It was. Um, it was
1: an exciting it pickup. was
2: a bargain it was it was a bargain well and done
1: well it was a done. cat lady
2: house too so nice. you
1: know nice uh i'm here with carly what's your last name carly uh davidson carly davidson who knows nothing about me or didn't until five minutes ago but we have a <laughs> a mutual friend who uh who hooked us up i saw your work uh for the first time on the dish Oh, sure. Yeah. So our friend was an editor uh, at Andrew Sullivan's The the Daily Dish, or whatever it's called, or whatever it was called, which I love. That was one of my favorite, like the only go-to everyday website I had.
2: Yeah, it was really good content early on, too. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well,
2: did Chris tell you how I, how we met?
1: No, I know that he spent a lot of time in Portland.
2: No, I reached out to him for a copyright violation. Oh, <laughs> this really? Was, this was funny. So it was... You know the early er days of weird viral animal photos, maybe, and I had this picture uh, of an otter that I had taken. Uh-huh. That I was working with um,
1: the masturbating otter.
2: Not, no, it was a child otter. Oh. Maybe now she's a masturbating otter. <laughs> I, I can ask her keepers. But at the time, she was very pure and uh, you know just a child. it was a virginal um, young otter, <laughs> and uh, she. So I had taken this picture that went viral online and Chris had shared it, you know, totally innocently, like, oh, I found this cool picture. And I had this, like...
1: Oh, I should add, there are animals. Hi. There are (laughs) animals. I'm going to pause.
2: I like the idea that as an animal photographer, there'd be this, like, kind of, like, journalistic... Like angle. Like
1: what what's the is, hook? What is, what's, what's the, the hook? hook? Yeah. What are you
2: doing to these animals? I
1: don't think I even mentioned that you're an animal photographer. Let's get that out. Carly is an animal photographer, and we're back. And
2: we're and we're back <laughs> after a, a nice long <laughs> a side little,
1: conversation. A hiatus. Yeah, I have to stop. I have to stop uh, letting you talk when the microphone's off. You get so damn interesting. <laughs> we missed the
2: whole conversation about psychedelics. Psychedelics. And trees.
1: Although I have to tell you, it's probably just as well. My audience has heard me talking about psychedelics ad nauseum, so at least my side, they don't need to hear anymore.
2: Well, you know, it just reminds me, I'm just going to go off on these tangents. Go
1: off. You um, know what this my, podcast is called? What? Tangentially Speaking.
2: Oh my God, that was like a total, go. I just picked that out of the <laughs> plasma of the, the ether, universe. yeah. Um, but my neighbor dropped off, I, I worked at the Oregon Zoo, and I volunteered there for years, and um, my neighbor does a lot of estate sales. And he found this stack of old literature and meeting notes from the Oregon Zoo Society. Mm. And one of the stacks he brought home was about uh, testing elephants with LSD. And uh, a very tragic story, actually, about an elephant up in Seattle. Yeah. heard about that. That that overdosed. And it was the the firsthand account of this happening.
1: I'd love to hear that because cuz is not neurotoxic so there there's no overdose well, dosage.
2: They what they did is they they compared the dose of um, LSD that you would give a human yeah. and they multiplied it by body weight. Right. So the amount that they gave the elephant was enough to just send it into a state and then they you know they were concerned for its life and I think they uh, gave it something else to try to take it out of that state. It just—it it became this kind of just spiral. But I think. <sighs> The dose they gave the elephant was so high that it was like it was just. It wasn't like down. the
1: elephant thought it could fly and jumped out a window. <laughs> one of those stories. That would
2: be though no, That would have been. That would have taken a very large
1: window. <laughs> yeah, uh, and getting upstairs is yeah, a trick too.
2: But man, it made me so sad because could <laughs> yeah. you imagine? I mean, and these animals, like I just feel like their brains are even more developed than ours, yeah. and so. They probably needed like less of a dose than we do.
1: I don't know. It's didn't need any dose at all. They're tripping all the time, right? Yeah. We're the ones who need to need drugs to get us back to the state of appreciating the natural world. Maybe
2: I should really bring that into the studio when I'm working. Some
1: acid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well that'd be a guide by that book. Like <laughs> tripping pets.
2: I mean that's that's you know, I think that the, the Shake book is um, you know, if you if you look at it and you really want to experience it, I feel like psychedelics would lead those images to be uh Yeah. They might be kinda of terrifying on acid actually.
1: Yeah, I've seen like I had uh pets and I'm sure you have to what, let, would come around when you were smoking weed, and they'd be like, "Hey, give me some of that."
2: I had a dog with horrible arthritis when I was growing up, and yeah, he would just sit right by me and just yeah. stare at me, and I was like, "All right, like yeah. this is clearly helping you out." Um, Plus, they get contact
4: eyes. I'm sure,
1: you know. I mean, just from the energy you were talking about, otters. I've had otters come out of nowhere twice when I was tripping by rivers. Once in Alaska, <laughs> once in Mexico, and they just like. Like, come right up to you. And, you know, they're pretty shy in the wild. Yeah, yeah. But they're just like, hey, dude, what's up? And the, the one in, in Mexico was bizarre. I was I was, oh, was. it
2: in a river or was it at the ocean? It was a river. Because some of those rivers, they had, like, red eyes.
1: Mm, I don't remember that. Right. That would have freaked me out, like, I think. In
2: Brazil, the river otters are super weird. Like, yeah. very cool. But, um, no,
1: this was in northern Mexico okay. in the, the Copper Canyon um, where the Tarahumara Indians are. It's, uh, I, yeah, I was down there on this river and I was tripping with this Canadian guy that I met. And we were sitting by the river. He had his back to the river. And the otter just popped up about three feet behind him out of the water. And I was like, don't turn around. But there's <laughs> an otter right behind you. And I was like, hey, otter. And, and they just, I think they just sense that you're okay, you know?
2: I think they I, that we just, we're more... tuned in because I grew up next to this nature preserve in New York and what part of New York uh, Croton Harmon Croton on Hudson oh on the Hudson Uh and so the nature preserve was actually technically in Austin called T-Town and uh, you know just being a kid and being around nature I think when you're tuned into it you see everything it's like Mm. the way we sit down and watch television when you're Mm. when you grow up around that and you don't have a TV it's like you sit and you watch like uh, you know eggs hatch you know you, you yeah. get such this like um, uh, you tap in yeah. in a way that I, like, I don't being in like an urban environment and you know Portland is urban I, I don't yeah. do anymore so yeah. I think if you're sitting you know tripping by a river in Mexico and like just like in nature whether the animals are, are coming and checking you mm. out I think you're just noticing all these things that you just right. don't notice when you you're ever heard of there. a book
1: called Pilgrim at Tinker Creek Mm -mm. It's a beautiful book. Oh, my God. If you ever want to read a book that tunes into that, Mm -hmm. it's this woman, uh, Annie Dillard. She's a great writer, but she basically uh, just was on this this, uh, farm in Virginia, and she would just go and sit somewhere and just observe and think and just go with it, and then she would write uh, different sort of disconnected um, essays about her experiences, and like I remember one of them, she's sitting by this creek, and you know she's writing about like how many millions of organisms are in the you know one square meter beneath her, you know where she's sitting in the soil, and that dragonflies and just all the mm-hmm. stuff she's seeing, and meanwhile there's this little frog in the creek that she's watching, and the frog's just sort of there, you know half submerged, and. It's you know the, she can see the heartbeats on the side the mm-hmm. doop 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 and um, and then it starts to lose its color it like gets dull and its eyes get dull and she notices that the pulsing has stopped and she's like did this frog just die what's going on the frog's still sitting there and then suddenly the frog implodes
2: I was getting eaten by something
1: yeah and and the skin floats down the stream. And I'm like, holy shit, what just happened? So she goes and researches it and finds out there's these water spiders mm. that'll come under a frog, inject some poison that immobilizes Is it. Is it a
2: beetle? Water beetles?
1: Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. But it injects Diant this shit beetle. and the, everything inside the frog dissolves. Yes, and then it... And it yeah. Yuck. But, anyway, but, but
2: this is like, you can't yeah, write this, right? You're like, what is it, like, Creature from the Black Lagoon? But, like, you're watching it happen in small scale yeah. with, like, this, like... <laughs> the Insects are crazy. Could you imagine just living in a world where insects were our predators? It's pretty
1: scary. Insects are freaky.
2: You know, I love, like, uh, jumping spiders are one of my favorites. Mm. Like, they are just, like, the ultimate soldier. Like, they're just these little... Yeah. And, and they're so badass. Like if you go up to a jumping spider and not that I like messing with animals, I feel like, you know, we're in their space too. Mm. But if you have a jumping spider and it's sitting on a table and you tap your finger on that table, it doesn't run away. It gets up on its hind legs and it basically is like, Wait, you wanna start? You wanna start?
1: <laughs> you, like, you, me? you want a piece of of <laughs> Um
2: and you know, here I am,
1: like a thousand thousands of exactly. times the
2: size of this thing. Exactly. And like you look at it, and you can't not be intimidated. It's such a, an amazing um, uh, commentary on body language that yeah. you know you can be this much bigger and just have the shit scared out of you yeah. by this, like you know eraser size.
1: Well, people often say like you know I, I work in evolution, so I'm dealing with evolutionary arguments a lot and stuff. And you'll often hear people say like. You know, well, humans have these. We have our teeth, and we're, you know, uh, we're so, you know, intimidating. And it's like, oh, are you so fucking weak. kidding me? We're pathetic. We're pathetic. <laughs> I mean, I gave I gave this TED talk, and after the TED talk, the the guy Chris Anderson, who's mm-hmm. sort of the main TED guy, he came up on the stage, and he's like, well, it was about sex, so yeah. sex at dawn, and he said, well, you know, you're sort of equating the way you know we were in nature to the way we should be today and you know many people have argued that well in nature we're very violent and we have these sharp teeth and these you know, claws and... Who
2: who could ever look at the human compared to any other animal and think that we're intimidating? You know, I'm I'm gonna forget who this is and I wish I remembered yesterday I was listening to a piece on NPR um, and a guy was talking about how He's he was trying to figure out what is it that humans have. How did we evolve into this like kind of like soft
1: Chris machine? McDougal and the is sweat. running. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Th- I
2: thought that was really interesting. And I was like, well, there you go. Like right. it does, it does make sense. And so, you know, stamina. We we don't have anything but stamina, and most. I mean, I barely have that. Yeah, you know, I try I'm not
1: to run. running it's down like any antelopes. Exactly
2: yeah, a thing. So, I mean, I think that's a great way to just. React to the idea that we're at all intimidating. I mean, I work, I worked with um, primates for a little while, uh, chimpanzees and orangutans, and um, one of the orangutans I worked with, uh, he would take, while you were feeding them, he would take his cardboard in his enclosure and he would unravel it in, like, a spiral and then use it as a hook. He'd put it underneath his enclosure. I mean, when you work around these animals, you really recognize that we, we might have, like, a, a higher form of... Like auditory language, but like aside from that, I definitely have met people that were not as smart as these primates I was working with many yeah, times. Yeah. So he would be like trying to hook stuff with the cardboard, while I was you know feeding the other orangutans. And uh, one time he managed to get a this um, metal dustbin, and he hooked it and he brought it in. It, it, this guy was super cool. He was really sweet, right? And he just takes it and he looks at me and he just (laughs) bends it in half this thing is steel and he's like smiling you know you could see it in his eyes he was so proud of himself and I was just like how even amongst the primates did we end up so pathetic like like, you know these guys are still capable of like really like their their strength is
3: just yeah
2: Formidable, um, yeah. and we were sitting here like, look, I got like a hundred pound weight, and I'm lifting it, and they're just kind of like, and I can bend it in half. Yeah. Uh, so that was that yeah. Was
1: really cool. I was teaching high school briefly in Spain, one of my many goofball jobs I had, and uh, I I was talking to this class about chimpanzees, mm-hmm. and I said, you know, a chimpanzee uh, is five times has five times the strength of a human, <laughs> and um, and I said, and they're only this high. And I held my hand up, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, my hand was, you know, a good three or four feet off the ground, which is the general chimpanzee height. And one of the students said, um, when you say they're that high, are you referring to the floor or the desk? Right? <laughs> <laughs> so she thought... Was that chimpanzee like was long, <laughs> Yeah, like 18 inches high and five times as strong as well, a Well, look
2: human- at ants. Come on. Oh, I mean, they, they
1: are. They feel, yeah, they, right. They
2: think comparatively...
1: Crazy.
2: We are we are weak on ev- in every yeah. in every capacity. I mean, even when I look at my ten year old dog, like jump up on things like effortlessly, and yeah. I'm just like, I can't. I'm 34 and I can barely crawl yeah. onto my bed without like spraining <laughs> a muscle.
1: <laughs> well, okay. So to tie up a few loose ends, there, the book you're referring to that you were listening to on NPR, the book's called Born to Run. It's a great book. The author's Chris McDougall. And uh, he gave a TED Talk as well, which I think you were listening to the TED Radio Hour.
2: I bet I was. Yeah,
1: I heard it too. Uh, And uh, where I was camping in that Copper Canyon in northern Mexico Mm -hmm. is where he went when he wrote the book. Because his book's all about the Tarahumara Indians, who I mentioned, who run these, like, and you they, know. And they
2: do, like, the, while they're running, they do these, like.
1: Yeah, like it's sort of a ritualistic racing. Yeah, it. yeah. And they never use shoes. They don't use. So that that book's a real indictment of Nike and the running shoe industry and all that. Yeah. Great book. Wonderful book. And the other thing was you were in the middle of talking about how you met uh, Chris, another Chris. Right,
3: right, the Chris uh, who
2: who put us in touch. Yeah,
1: that you Uh, were pissed off because he used one of your photos.
2: Yeah, so this was, you know, I God, it must have been...
1: Was it one of the shaking dog photos?
2: No, it was way before that. It was probably one of the first photos that ever I put online that anybody was interested in. Uh
3: Uh-huh.
2: and at the time I was working at the zoo and I was uh, volunteering with the zoo photographer because it was really fun for me to have the access to Is the Is that
1: how you got into this?
2: With. uh yeah I mean I've been working around photography for a really long time mm. but it was something I kind of let go of and I was really focused on working with animals right and then there's a photographer Michael Durham at the Oregon Zoo who's actually a really well-known bat photographer mm. really interesting guy very techy um, and I started talking with him, and then I started, you know, volunteering in his department. And he actually really pushed me. He was like, "You, you need to take pictures of animals, like outside of just doing this as a hobby. Like, mm. this is you're you're good at this, and it's interesting." So, um,
1: bat photography.
2: But, yeah, bat photography. What The
1: fuck is that? That's great. He
2: works with the uh, Forest Service a lot, oh. and he goes into you know caves and sets up these special. Like lighting things and tents, and you know, yeah. has the Forest Service do all the handling so it's not stressful for the bats and.
1: That's a I tough gig. Not There's possible. no natural light. Yeah. You know, yeah. by so definition, you're.
2: He's built some very strange flash systems to make oh. this happen. So, uh, and he also does like insects and these like small scale mm. kind of macro right. worlds that are really cool. Uh, so you know, I'm I'm working at the zoo. I take this photo. It goes online. It's of Tilly, this baby, um, North American river otter.
1: Mm-hmm. And- Oh, right, the virginal river otter. It,
2: the virginal river otter, which was actually going viral as the disappointed otter. This was like the thing. It became disappointed otter, and people were making memes out of it. It ended up on an episode of um, uh, 30 Rock as Tracy um, Jordan, Tracy Morgan's yeah. character, um, as an otter. That they were, like, there's a, there's a split screen on one of the episodes with this picture <laughs> oh, of the solder. That's amazing. But bef- well before that happened, um, Chris ran it, and I had this sense of like, as an artist, I was like, man, like I need to be credited. The zoo needs to be credited. Yeah. Like, and so I, I was kind of like hunting these different like avenues down and being like, you need to credit this stuff, and especially because at the time it was like you know copywritten by the zoo, and I was concerned. Mm. And I reach out to Chris and I'm really pissed. I think I like, called the, uh, it was at the the a dish. Like, hey, that's, that's my photo. And he's like, oh, it's such a great photo. I'd love to credit you. Why don't you keep in touch with me and show me the other work you have? So I start sending him all this stuff and he's like, these animals are so weird looking. Cause that's yeah. what I like. I just like getting these strange moments. Yeah. Um, I look for, like, people would hate me if I took photos of them because I would just get every, like, the worst faces. Like, I'd be like, oh, that's the moment. Um, So I started sending him things, and he started uh, publishing them on The Dish pretty regularly. Uh, And I think that really gave me a foothold to that, to learning about, um, you know, uh, social media Mm. and how to kind of leverage yourself as an artist, being like, you know what, like, we're both kind of, using each other for different things and it's a good beneficial relationship
1: symbiotic baby it's it's
2: totally symbiotic. nature
1: right right. yeah Mm -hmm.
2: and animals and all that stuff uh so that was tilly the the not the master not the chronically masturbating otter yeah
1: yeah so chris shout out to chris yeah wonderful guy now he's at the uh at
3: Atlantic. Atlantic,
1: yeah, Yeah. the new notes section. Everybody check out the notes at the Atlantic. It's still new, getting off the ground, but it's... I really like that format of just, like, these ongoing conversations involving experts, authors, and emails from, you know, readers. And it's Mm -hmm. just this... It's a really nice community that they had there at the Dish. I hope they get that rolling again at the Atlantic.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, they've they've. It's been it's recreated itself now because there was the Dish and then there was the um, there was another iteration of that.
1: Well, first they were at the Atlantic with Andrew Sullivan. Right. Then they were the Dish or the Daily Dish. The Daily
2: Dish, and then it was like the Daily.
1: I think it was just the Daily Dish, then the Dish, and then it ended suddenly. Yes. Very precipitously. Yeah.
2: But now it's now there's the the kindling is a glow again. A glow. It just comes
1: back to, to where Exactly. It so you've done uh, just to like get the logistical stuff. I yeah. see Shake Cats and Shake over here, these two books. That's right. Um, which you had this brilliant idea of taking straight on portraits of animals when they're shaking. Mm-hmm. Like, which is like, we've all laughed at that, right? A million times, we've all laughed at the goofy wet dog, you know, the ears and the skin and everything. But you capture the, all that movement so beautifully. It was a brilliant idea well, and really you. well executed, too. Yeah. I love this photo. Um,
2: yeah, it was inspired by me cleaning drool off of my walls at home. <laughs> oh.
1: That's that probably the greatest thing to ever come from cleaning drool.
2: Let's uh, let's hope not. Let's hope. Well, motherhood. Some There's
1: a lot of it. drool cleaning involved in motherhood, I guess. Yeah, yeah, but
2: you know, hopefully your child isn't getting it on the ceiling. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> I think of my, my dozen nieces and nephews and what a bomber it would be if they had that trajectory.
1: Yeah, that would, that would.
2: Um, no, but I, I had this big mastiff who was just very drooly and mm. was always shaking his head and, you know, a small house. <laughs> and so you'd have to kind of scope it the out with a arc. little uh, sponge and just kind of mm. spot clean. Uh, And I got some new fancy lights that had a, uh, you know, fast duration, a a very brief flash duration, Hmm. like a 16,000th of a second or something. Did
1: you get them from the back guy?
2: Uh, No, actually, but we did talk about them a bunch. I think he now has a bunch of those lights, too.
1: Oh,
3: okay.
2: Um, They're... uh, Paul Buff Einstein lights. They're actually really inexpensive. I, I use much higher end lights when I shoot commercially, mm. but these things are awesome and they're lightweight. And if they get knocked mm. over by an animal, it is no great tragedy because right. they don't cost 15 grand. Away. Right. So, um, I picked up some of those and I was cleaning this drool and, you know, I was watching all these videos of people doing things like popping balloons.
3: Oh, popping balloons right. and we're
2: freezing motion right. so I thought oh well this could be interesting, this could be an interesting way to test these lights and so uh, I brought a friend's dog in who was also very drow- uh, jowly and very comfortable in the studio and uh, was, try- was trying to figure out how do, I, how do I repeat this motion in a controlled sense and I thought and my friend who owned the dog happened to be a vet tech, I was like well let's give him an ear cleaning like, let's clean his ears. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I have to clean my dog's ears all the time. I've had a string of animals with ear problems. So, I, you know, on a monthly basis, I'm doing ear cleanings anyways. And so, you know, put a couple drops of ear cleaner in his ears. And next thing I know, we have these just completely ridiculous images. <laughs> uh, and, and yeah. you know, I uploaded them and I laughed. And I think as an artist, uh, I... I, I don't want to i don't know this is this is an issue i don't want to ever look at my own work and go like, oh, look how great this is because i just feel like there's this like line of like douchery that happens sometimes right. with artists when they're just like look how great my work is and at the same time i think it's great for people to be proud of their work so you know I you have
1: really, to you know, be or you're not going to bother with it right ex- well
2: you have to enjoy it like yeah. i think that there's you know those two things so i looked at it and i felt just like joyful and i'm Mm. there with my friend amanda and we were both just clicking through these photos and just laughing and it was such a good feeling and i just wanted to keep doing that and so uh that's where the shake project grew out of Mm. you know it was um and and the cool thing is that the images were really funny but they're also like you know, uh, it's not like a Precious Moments photo where you're like, oh, look how cute. Like, they yeah. are weird. Yeah, They're it's, super not, it's weird. not cute,
1: cute kitties. And it, I mean, there are cute kitties, They're, but it's yeah. more than that. It's action and humor. And like, you can, like, I, I feel like in some of them, and it's been a while since I looked at them, I didn't prepare for this problem. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, I remember in some of them, like, in the midst of all that flopping and and drool and the ears and everything there's this sense of the character of, in the dog's eyes mm-hmm. there's like like he's looking out from the storm and and I feel like I can see him a little bit more clearly than I could if he was just standing there composed
2: Well and I, well and it's just you just want to it's more interesting to look at maybe yeah but what is it um what was what did Mike Bignola say? I really love that quote.
3: Well, me exactly what they
2: become. Yeah, a, a friend of ours, Mike Mignola, who you know writes Hellboy, is his mm. most famous work. He's you know in the in the comic world, um, and he wrote, uh, "You really capture the moment that these animals become monsters," and I thought that was a really great. That yeah. was that was poignant. Everybody else is like, "Look how cute all this is," and he's like, "These are like weirdo
3: gargoyles."
2: <laughs> um, hey,
1: while we're talking about this, where can people? log on and, and look at them right now and we want them to buy your books but it, there's a website right
2: well yeah I mean you can just go I have a book website which is shakethebook.com that can direct you to wow, buy you it go. but uh, you know just carlydavidson.com my okay. name has the, the actual photos on it to look
1: through and it's c-a-r-l-i yes yeah, carly Davidson. Yeah. Yeah,
2: there's I, there have been some interesting spellings that people have suggested throughout my life
1: really yeah. of carly yeah
2: K-A-R-L-I-G-H came up recently, wow. where I had a correct <laughs> It's just
1: unnecessarily difficult. Yeah, yeah, like what, how pretentious is that?
2: <laughs> <laughs> there were no Carly. When I was growing up, I was the only Carly. It made yeah. me feel very special, and now there's Carlys everywhere. So well,
1: my name's Chris Ryan, right? And yeah, it, like Chris. people call me Ryan all the time. When I was a kid, Ryan wasn't a first name. It was a proper last name. And now suddenly I've got two first names. Three. Christopher Patrick Ryan. I got all first names. Have all first names. Fucking Anderson Cooper gets all the last names. I get all the first names.
2: You should, you should have this be maybe like um, like a question in your mind next time you're doing some kind of like vision quest. Like, what, like why what did
1: is, I get all first no, names?
2: what is your last name? I think maybe <laughs> you, should, you should find the last name.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so the the story about the um, the tripping elephant, uh-huh. and then your earlier story about the masturbating otter, which you haven't told on.
2: I haven't told that on air. Oh. But
1: they remind me. of... Do you know about this thing? Uh, do you know? Oh, and float tanks. I can pull and these tanks. all together. Oh, pull them all together. I can this pull is them be all fun. together in one one anecdote. John Lilly. Oh sure. Invented the float tank, right? Mm-hmm. Before that, he was working in the Bahamas, headed up this dolphin research project. Mm-hmm. And there was a woman there. Do you know about this? The, this the woman, the woman who
2: had a who relationship her with her the doctor. Oh no! Oh, oh,
1: the, yeah, with the dolphin. With the dolphin. Yes. Yeah. So, so they flooded
2: they a, a house. They were serious. Yeah. They were in love. <laughs> I
1: think at least he was. He, <laughs> yeah. he was. So, for people who don't know this, I don't even know where they'd hear it. I think the she dollop. wrote a book.
2: The dollop. The dollop has a um, a whole podcast about it, doesn't it?
1: It's called the dollop.
3: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay.
1: It's a great podcast. This is Carly's partner who's who's out sorry. of mic range, sorry, but, sorry. but he's a font of information. Yes. Um, the Dollop Podcast. And she wrote a book as well. I can't remember what it's called right now, but I'll put a link on my website when this goes up. Um So the story is they wanted to understand, you know, this was in the late 60s when they were doing uh, Project Nim, Mm -hmm. another weird experiment. So the idea was that animals raised in a human atmosphere would be able to um, acquire higher communication skills. Higher, that's a bad bad word. Um, Communication skills that would allow them to communicate with humans more readily. Which which
2: also led to many traumatized chimpanzees. project.
1: a lot of trauma. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. a lot of animal trauma. This one is better than most because so they flooded this this apartment or house or something. Uh, to allow the dolphin to live in the house with this woman mm-hmm. and like she's sloshing around in this house sleeping on a wet bed like in the water all the time and this dolphin became very attached to her. Well I
2: think they were attached before the project even started. I oh, think really? it like became she was like one of the maybe maybe I think so she was one of the handlers yeah. of the trainers yeah. and then it like was escalating and they kind of like went.
1: Further. Well, he was sexually attracted to oh, yeah. her, and she very casually gave him hand jobs.
2: Yes, and and made it a research thing, which is like, what a curious uh, relationship, where she's like, you know, this research partner, but like you wonder if she was really like partaking in this relationship with a dolphin.
1: Well, why not? Yeah. I, she was, I, I heard her, I don't know if it was on that podcast, The Dollop, or somewhere else, but she was very matter-of-fact about yeah. it. She was like, look, I couldn't, get, I couldn't do the research. He wouldn't answer questions and do different things as long as he was horny. So, like, you know, you and, just and had to animals, give them a hand job and then we get to work.
2: Right. And animals, it's like, well, this goes back to your first book, which I have not read, which now I'll have to read. <laughs> but, like, when, when you're working with animals, like Saul, my dog who is asleep next to us right now, I'll, I'll show you this great video I have on my phone. I got this stuffed animal dog as a model for my studio. And I, it's, you know, kind of like a life size beagle. And I put it on the floor for the first time, and Saul just, like, looked at it, and, like, something just just took over. And he went up to that dog, and he started humping it in front of everybody. Shameless. <laughs> Completely shameless. And it was maybe the funniest thing that's ever happened in my lifetime. Because he was he kept humping it, and then he'd go around to the front of it and lick its nose as if he was, like... I love you, like oh. but, like, call me, you know, like, right. and I was projecting this, this, um. He's like,
1: why isn't she more into this?
2: Right, exactly, yeah. like, or, you know, I was, I was definitely projecting this hilarious role going on, when really for him, he was probably like, we're humping, and then I'm just, like, trying to get a sense of whether this dog's into it or not, Yeah, you know, yeah. um, and I think he finally figured out that it wasn't really a dog. And maybe he knew it the whole time, but he just wanted to believe. <laughs> but, uh, hey,
1: I know some sex dolls like that.
3: <laughs> yeah. Our,
1: our book, actually, one of the funnier things, you know, you're talking about how your your otter picture showed up on 30 yeah, yeah, Rock yeah. and all that. Our book has shown up in all these bizarre places. I mean, they talked about it on The Good Wife one night, you know, yeah, like yeah, years we ago. Someone's like emailing me, oh. Um, but anyway, the, there's this uh, like real high-end sex doll company. Uh-huh. I mean, like five thousand bucks each. You know, these super human, very realistic-looking sex dolls, and um, they had a bunch of them posing with a copy of our book, like reading in bed. <laughs> like,
2: stuff. That's great. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's pretty pretty freaky. Um, this
2: was this was um this was fifty fifty dollars and ninety nine cents. This dog sex doll. It's available on uh, Amazon.com.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, you know they they make sex dolls for dogs. Well, for animals in general.
2: I did not like like beyond like like, like, like I understand like panda porn is where my understanding of this ends. Panda porn. Can we talk about a species that? Listen, I don't want people to hate me. I love animals. Uh-huh. I love them. I want to see pandas thrive. I want to believe that they're fucking coming back. But you
1: sick of pandas? But,
2: like, well, I just feel like if you have to, like, go through the robotics of, or the, the instruction manual of this is how you have intercourse, like, maybe those animals are, like, finding their way out naturally.
1: Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I agree. I mean- and, and, like okay, all this ling-ling and zing-zing, you know, oh, look, they've had babies. I don't give a fuck. Why, why do we care about pandas?
2: Because well, they're
1: black and white?
2: Because they're, they are cute, right? I mean, when you look at, like, animals that are on the verge of extinction yeah. and they, you know, maybe, I'm trying to think of a good example, don't have the, basically, an oversized teddy bear appeal. The white
1: rhino white rhino. Like I mean, look, there's left there, the, the northern
2: white rhino. Um, yeah. the, I'm going to forget her name, but I have a friend who used to take care of her, mm. the one who just passed away in San Diego. And I read that story and straight up started tears down my face. It was mm. just that moment, like one of those moments of reality where you're like, here's this majestic, misunderstood, if you've ever worked around rhinos, you know that they're smart, incredibly gentle animals. And, mm. um, and uh not this this idea of them, you know, just running around the the African plains, kind of like stomping people to death or putting out fire like no, like these are really interesting, sensitive animals. Yeah. And just seeing that like there's now three left. Yeah. You know, and uh that's devastating. And then but these animals, those animals, they know how to reproduce. They know what they're doing. Like, if you gave them a, an honest shot, I think that, you know...
1: Rhinos know how to fuck. Rhinos know
2: how to fuck. Is that what you're fuck. saying? I mean, they...
1: <laughs> That's a t-shirt. Yeah, there so. you go.
2: Like, I don't... I think that they're... You don't have to show a rhino a video. Put it that way. And... But, you know, these beloved pandas, like, they'll they'll always have funding. They'll always have donors. There's yeah. people who just see pandas and it's like... It's their spirit animal, you know. It's that. Do you think feeling. that's the
1: problem that they're too cute? Because, I mean, I find you it hard to get go. turned on around cuteness, which
2: is why. <laughs> they look at each other and they're, like,
1: like,
3: uh,
2: they're like, oh, but you kind of have I can't have fuck you. You're
3: like
1: a teddy bear, on. yeah.
2: Maybe they're just not rough enough. I mean, how not, do you get, they don't have, like, that rustic appeal. There's no
1: nastiness to a no, panda. No, maybe
2: if they just, like, you know, maybe did more, like, waxing or styling <laughs> to really show off how muscular they are. Um,
1: <laughs> exactly. They got to get, like, a butch panda to really, you know.
2: Yeah, I mean, know. maybe that's... Gonna to save the species. Because
1: grizzlies, you know, grizzlies oh, no, are fucking no whatever they want, right? Grizzlies but are Nobody's sexy. showing videos to grizzlies to get them turned on. No, no. no yeah. not
2: necessarily.
1: Yeah, this is, Nessie, you haven't read our book, but uh, it's, I co-wrote it with my wife, by the way. Um, but, uh, uh, a big part of it is primate genitalia. Oh. So like, this oh, it's whole, out there. this whole primate sex thing is right up my dirty dark alley. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, uh, yeah, I mean, primates are...
1: You know so about funny. bonobos, right?
2: Oh, listen. Yeah. Bonobos good, are, good. they are amazing. It's
1: amazing how many people have never heard of bonobos. I, I'm incensed at that.
2: Well, I, I think, here, they're in a conflict zone. The research started on them, right? Like, um, in the 60s and 70s, maybe, people started realizing, hey, these aren't ch- these aren't chimpanzees. They're, they're different. They yeah. have a different social structure. They're physically slightly different. And then there's the civil war that basically drives researchers out, and so that's like, part of it. You know, and and
1: there's another part,
2: which is people are so mortified at how wonderfully sexual they are, right? They
1: yeah, and take it further, and this is what I'm doing in this this new book. The bonobos are a counterexample to to the Hobbesian view of right. human nature, right? Yeah. You will read all this stuff, New York Times. You know, books, demonic males, all the Steven Pinker shit. They always talk about chimps. Like, well, humans are naturally warlike. Just and, and look and at the chimps.
2: chimps. Chimps are killing leopards. And yeah. then you, like, chimps are killing each other. And there's warfare within the groups. And then you have bonobos. They get in a fight. And they all fuck about it. Exactly. You're like, let's... They don't even
1: fight. They're like, like, oh, let's
2: just all fuck. There's
1: anxiety, let's all fucking chill out here. Right. And no one's, no bonobos ever killed another bonobo, raped another bonobo, no infanticide. And so what do they do? Do they, you know, say, well, there's a balance, you know, two possible. No, they just don't mention the fucking bonobo.
2: And we're. Technically, I believe the DNA evidence is that we're more closely related, actually, to bonobos even
1: than Well, that's problematic. No, DNA is that we're exactly equally related to okay. them because okay. what happens is there's this, you know, evolutionary line mm-hmm. and then it splits. One mm-hmm. side goes to chimps, the mm-hmm. other leads to, or, or one side leads to chimps and bonobos, the other side leads right. to us. So that split is shared equally. But behaviorally, you can certainly argue that humans and bonobos have more in common than humans and chimps do, particularly around sexuality.
2: Well, and also, you know, you just have to wonder, chimps, you know, maybe they just had a different culture than the bonobos. Why can't the animals have had culture that kind of directed their, uh, how they problem solved within their communities?
1: Well, chimps all ended up on... uh, the North side of the Congo, mm-hmm. and the bonobos are all on the south side. Yeah. So something when that river split the community, mm-hmm. the original community ended up. But it's still not real clear exactly what it is because the the sort of leading theory for how they develop these two different cultures, is that because the chimps share the ecosystem with gorillas Mm -hmm. and gorillas and chimps eat some of the same foods, that it was more competitive and therefore the chimps became more violent, et cetera, et cetera. I'm By now, I hope successfully edited out the uh, canine explosion that just took place. This, Alex, look at this thing. Uh, he, he's so chilled, but man, if there's a noise,
2: he's a guard dog. Watch
1: out, yeah. He
2: protects.
1: That's his job. What is he? His breed?
2: He's a standard schnauzer. Schnauzer. Um, I adopted him when he was seven, a couple years Schnauzer's ago. Schnauzer is a funny schnauzer. word
1: because it sounds like one who schnauzes.
2: <laughs> one, <laughs> one who schnauzes. I just love the just the. The Schnauz aspect
1: of it. <laughs> the schno, It's the, like, what is it? A Yiddish dog? He's,
2: he, well, Saul. <laughs> and he's...
1: Oh, Saul. You know,
2: I'm a German Jew. I, oh. I think I project that on him. Okay. So maybe there so is some Yiddish. So that's the nervousness. Yiddish, yeah, that's, that
1: is. Persecution.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah.
1: Schnauzer.
2: Schnauzer. Uh, and he he's very protective. Yeah. Like, I've never... I've always had dogs. I've had these big... Big, dumb, beefy dogs—right, um, mastiffs and boxers and like these mixes that have always been.
1: Would you name them Fabio? Fa-
2: yes, they were all named Fabio. <laughs> Fabio one, two, three, four, and five. Um, Norbert, Norbert—that little memorial up there is for.
1: Oh, uh, Norbert! That's yeah. The, he was. He great. looks like a Norbert. He was. Yeah. He was a
2: great dog. He was the one whose slobber inspired the Shake <laughs> projects. Um, uh, but what he, a legacy! Yeah, but he was like the. He was. If someone came and knocked on the door, he wouldn't even make a sound he'd be like whatever come in just take whatever you want just don't bother me I'm sleeping and then I adopt this dog and he is like intelligent and he knows he looks good you know he just has a confidence about him and he's always Mm. working he's always checking the uh, perimeter do his perimeter checks and he comes Mm. and sits by my feet yeah he loves being out in public he loves being around people he's very
1: yeah he he accepted me immediately when Mm -hmm. you said I was cool it was like okay yeah he's cool that's but he, it.
2: but the mailman, like his job every day is to tell the mailman to leave, and then the mailman leaves, so he's instantly rewarded. <laughs> and so the thought of trying to train that behavior out of him seems at ten years old seems just excessive.
1: Well, and I mean, this gets back to. Sex at dawn, honestly, as everything does.
3: Everything comes back to sex at dawn.
1: (laughs) But you know this idea of trying to train out a natural behavior. I mean, especially in a in a dog where it's trained, well, not even trained into him, it's bred into him. Yeah. You know, and things are bred into us as well by you know through natural evolution. Yeah, kids
2: are going to be really great video game players in generations to come. Their thumbs are going to be twice as strong,
1: (laughs) and they'll weigh (laughs) four hundred pounds. yeah, or they'll merge with machines. And <laughs> oh, I think the we're, singularity. We're close. We're yeah. Close. yeah. Um, anyway, we were talking about this—the uh, difference between the chimps and bonobos—and and and, I was And the northern gorillas. And I was going to yeah. say, like,
2: I have not worked with gorillas. Everybody I know has worked with gorillas. Like, reassures me that they are the gentlest right. of all of the, right. uh, you know, primates of all the uh, great apes. So, yeah. Like, so the can't whole see competition
1: them and, thing.
3: And
2: there's so much fucking food there.
1: And also, I mean, it 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 betrays uh, the most basic tenets of natural selection, which is. Natural selection says there will never be enough food because in the sort of Malthusian calculation, population will always expand to the carrying limit of what foods available. And so then there will be competition between the individuals of the bonobos as well. So unless you're saying like in five million years, bonobos haven't reproduced enough to saturate their, their niche, their ecological niche. Then that explanation makes no sense at all.
2: Well, I think it's just that it's again, it's this like competitive, compartmentalized view of nature, which is like, again, that it's this like, you know, like crocodile versus shark versus like, you know, gorilla with uh, whatever, like hulk hands. And then that these animals are all like, Like, whoever comes out on top is, like, the king of animals. And it's it's, just, like, so fucking crazy because, like, animals are, you know, I I think we are just so competitive and weird as animals or other animals. You see them, like, they're, like, game on, game off, right? There's There's a watering hole and everybody's fucking thirsty and everybody's, like, listen. Yeah. Like, we're... Not right now. When
1: you see that all the time, like the antelopes know the lions aren't hungry. And the lions are just walking through this herd of antelopes and everyone's like, yeah, whatever.
2: Yeah, game off. We're cool. Everybody has to survive. We're on break. Yeah. And I, I just, I don't know.
1: Yeah. yeah, you're right. I mean there's, it's, that's a big part of this book I'm writing now is this, this uh, propaganda about the natural world that's designed to make I mean, I, I see us as living in cages. And so the cage keepers are always telling us like, "Oh, you're so lucky that you're in that cage because it's really dangerous out there. Mm-hmm. You can't the, These bars are actually protecting you. Right. Mm-hmm. Whereas, in fact, we're inside the cage. We're trapped. Right. But we're, the civilizational message is to convince us that we're actually being protected from this horrible natural world where everything's constantly a struggle for survival. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was watching this nature film a while ago, and it was one of those BBC things with, you know, Richard Attenborough and his f- posh accent. And it was... Um, it opens with this seal playing in a wave. It's in, like, South Africa or somewhere. And it's like, you know, do-do-do-do, nice little language. Yeah, and then the do-do-do.
3: fucking Do-do-do.
1: Doo. Yeah. yeah, and, and it's, like, always, like they're, like, they're always, like, white.
2: thrashing them around, and you're like, no, the seal! like Blood,
1: this is, yeah. and the, the seal's tail is still flapping, and yeah, they, yeah. they slow it down. He actually said that they slowed it down to 140th normal speed, so you can see, like, this...
2: We're so, so amused by violence. And, well, well, but no. I went back you can watch and calculated it more slowly. Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> like so, you can really enjoy the. But I, I went and I looked up these seals and, like, okay, these seals live. I think they were harbor seals. They live on average thirty years. That's so mm-hmm. like a normal harbor seal lifespan. So let's say that that seal, like you know, got eaten in its prime. It was mm-hmm. 22, twenty-five, somewhere like that. So it's 25 years of, like, lying on warm rocks, hanging out with your friends, swimming around, eating fish, like, doing what you do. And then you die so quickly, so unexpectedly that they have to slow it down to forty Don't you
2: wish that there was better insurance for SEALs where they could sit in a bed rotting and pay off the health insurance system <laughs> and like everybody else? get tubes up their
1: noses. Like, everybody else.
2: Like, they're not even there anymore. They exactly. have dementia. They're like, I remember this
1: time I ate a fish.
2: Did I tell you about the time I ate a fish? Like, and it's just that loop, you know, and you're there's seal families watching them suffer through old age, and you're yeah. thinking, like, man,
1: they'd be so much better they'd be off. so much better off. <laughs> That's my point, exactly. Yeah. And I'm gonna go rewrite it now with, using your approach because your approach is much funnier than mine. <laughs> you were, I, I'm, see, just, worked I'm just, I'm just like scolding so and so angry. i have these
2: conversations yeah. with them. They are, they're these amazing animals, and you know, I worked with them briefly. I, I worked, uh, I, I was an intern with the marine life. Um, department at Oregon Zoo for like four months, Mm. five months and uh, worked with these sea lions and like they're so they are, they're really funny like they're really silly animals (laughs) and also like Whatever comes out of their bodies is just so appalling. It's just like <laughs> this weird fishy mass, and, like, it looks like concrete, so you step in it all the time when you're walking around there. Oh, the really? Oh, man. And they yeah. snarf at you when they're making sound. There's, <laughs> like, loogies that just kind of fly out at you.
1: Snarfing, which is similar to schnauzing. Schnauzing. But schnauzing is land-based.
2: Yeah, I think, like, schnauzing is dry and snarfing is wet. Right. somehow right. there's that delineation. But, yeah, I mean...
1: So I tell see, us about the saying. the masturbating otter.
2: Okay, we're we're. This, like, I feel like we keep coming back to the masturbating otter. Um, in captivity, animals are bored. I feel right. like when you work with animals, you know, when I when I say I've worked at a zoo, I like to then follow that with like. I, it's not like I love zoos. Mm. You know, I don't go to go into the zoo and say, man, I wish I was an animal at the zoo. Yeah. Which, you know, it's funny that you're talking about our the, our self-imposed... Uh, you cages.
1: are an animal in a yeah, zoo. An animal
2: in a zoo. Right. Um,
1: the question is, do you want to be in the Calcutta Zoo or the San Diego Zoo?
2: Right. There you go. I mean... Yeah. And either one of those zoos, there's ample space to masturbate. And I think this is what it comes back to is that, like, when you're bored and you're an intelligent yeah. animal, like, you are looking for whatever is at your disposal to entertain yourself and feel good on your 24-hour day. Right. And uh, a lot of these animals that you see having, like, uh, like, chronic masturbation or any, like, chronic... Uh, 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 stereotypical behaviors which is what it is it's um you actually create a you know a route in your brain that's like okay this is what feels good so i'm just going to do this over and over again yeah Yeah, so i mean i feel that a lot of the modern day zookeepers animal trainers animal enrichers their their job just new zookeeping used to be about cleaning up shit right that was your job It was like Uh, Here in Oregon, when you worked at Metro City City Council, City whatever, um, if they were trying to kind of elbow you out, they'd like send you to the zoo because then they'd be like, "Oh, just go tell Bob to go clean shit," you know, like whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, So you had these animals that just didn't have very enriching lives. They had small enclosures. They, you know didn't have people whose goal it was to make their lives better. They had people who, you know, whatever. They they had a job. And I I think that was relatively commonplace amongst zoos. Sure. They were menageries back in like the, you know, twenties to let's say sixties. I grew up uh with the Bronx zoo. So I used to go That's there a good zoo. and there was it's a good zoo now, but then it was mm. I mean, as a kid it still inspired me. Yeah. But it was like the cat house and the monkey house and these little cages and um the animals were were not happy. So over time, the the idea of being a zookeeper has changed to your job is to make these animals' lives interesting enough that they can actually have a quality of life. Yeah. They're the ambassadors to their species. Uh, so um, this is cute. Our yeah, cat is your, your cat is trying to ear. get
1: into my headphone case. That's,
2: she's succeeding.
1: Yeah, she's in there.
2: Um, but yeah, so... Now, part of your day is obviously spent cleaning, but then a big part of the day is spent building enrichment for animals. So for otters, this is creating puzzles, creating things that keep these animals that are smarter than we are in a lot of ways. Um, <laughs> That's a good shot. Yeah, keeping them entertained. And... Um,
1: I'm going to get one of you and, and, and the schnauzer. And the schnauzer. Yeah. He's gonna... just
2: like asleep over here. Um...
1: So we're getting, the, so this is, we're getting to the masturbating. Masturb- oh, so right.
2: basically, like, the, the, the ultimate keeper has animals that, like, don't masturbate that much because they're busy doing other things. Right. Uh, but when you have animals like an otter that's been in captivity for 20 years. What um, else are you going to do? And, and they figure it out. They say, man, this is, I did this once. It felt great. It was, you know, whatever. Like, they're probably going to take that up. They're going to do it a lot. Yeah, well, as
1: you say, what else is there to do? They're not hunting.
2: Well, and to train a behavior out of an animal, so say, like, an animal has a behavior, they're doing something that you know is, like, repetitive and unhealthy, in order to break that behavior, you have to give them something that is feels better, tastes better, is more interesting, Mm. and you have to basically create a a new pattern for them, a new pattern for their brain that breaks that behavior, and it can take a long time, and it can be, there's extinction bursts where they get worse at the behavior before they get better, and you really have to hook them into believing that doing it a different way is going to give them a better result. Now, yeah. if you can tell me a better result, like, a, like something better than orgasming for an animal, if you could like, be like, listen, let's have a conversation about something that's going to be better than this, like, no, there's, it's, it's just not gonna happen. All right. Unless like, you know.
1: Well, not to be facetious, but uh, I think the, this can be applied to foreign policy, you know, like terrorism. What's terrorism coming from? It's coming from the fact that there are no better options. <laughs> Right. For these people. It's like there's no. Or
2: they're not seeing a better option.
1: Well, I mean, in Pakistan, yeah. you know, in Iraq and Syria, there are no better options. There's nothing there. It's, there's no. like, what do you what are you going to do to get some dignity, some meaning in your life? You're going to fucking go blow up the people who've been blowing you up, up you and your yeah, friends. You yeah. know, that's what you're going to do.
2: That's what the, the bar was set there from childhood. Yeah. seeing This is the, the option. Have
1: you heard of Rat Park? Uh-uh. it's really interesting it's it's uh, Bruce Alexander was his name he's a Canadian psychologist uh, and so he works in addiction mm-hmm. and uh, you know there are all these rat studies like rats will you know press the lever to get more heroin or right, cocaine right. or whatever more than, and food. More than yeah. food and they'll starve and everyone yeah. knows this research right so he he was looking at it and he was like well that doesn't make sense like it, you know is it really that uh, pleasurable um, so he looked at this research and it's rats in cages.
2: Right, so they're fucking miserable. There's anyways. nothing to do. Right. It's like as humans in cages and we come
1: home exactly. and <laughs> like- <laughs> right. Exactly. So what he did was he built what he called Rat Park which was this big rat mm-hmm. complex where there were lots of things to do lots of balls to push around and places to dig and build nests and other rats to hang out with and so he removed the social isolation and as you said he made the environment stimulating and interesting and lots of other stuff to do and then he introduced the same research protocol and the rats ignored the drugs. They tried it once or twice and they're like yeah Whatever, whatever, and they yeah. just went back to having a good time. They didn't, so it, it completely subverts this notion that drugs are so powerful that if you ever try crack, you'll like leave everything behind. You'll only leave everything behind if you really don't if have anything else to leave. going on yeah, for you. Exactly, sure.
2: and I think that's I mean, literally animals in cages, right? So. Yeah the the ideal modern zoo complex going back to the bronx zoo when they opened the congo exhibit and they had this huge area for chimps to be or uh, gorillas to be moving around and exploring and I, i i have a picture somewhere in this house i'm sure but it the enclosure used to be a bare rock and a fence around it and a bunch of gorillas that were sitting there throwing up in their hands and eating it again. This is a stereotypy that you see in captivity with animals because they can eat and then they're rewarded over and over again. Right. And all of those stereotypies stopped as soon as they had an environment that they could interact with.
1: Right. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, we, we are accustomed to thinking that science is so developed. And then you come across something like Rat Park or the stuff you're talking about with zoos. It's so obvious. It's yeah. so fucking obvious.
2: Well, science, I mean, science starts in this, like, weird clean space, right? Which is, like, non-organic. It's like, sterility. Okay, it's very sterile. Yeah. Um, and, and it also, like, it, it comes with all these kind of rules. And even as, like, a photographer doing things that are technical, uh, I feel like I'm constantly being approached, especially by women, uh who want permission to call themselves photographers and it's that idea of like there's a right way to do things mm. there's i remember as a kid my father's an artist i always felt like i, I wasn't an artist because i couldn't perfectly draw something like photorealistically. realistically and i that was like the bar i had set of right. what art was right. um and you know science comes from this also very sterile place and the older i've gotten the more i've realized that like Art can be like my friend Bridget Irish making a four-leaf clover print with her ass, you know, green paint, <laughs> and like that's fucking art, right? Like that's yeah. amazing. It's hilarious. Yeah. Born on St. Patrick's Day, oh. Irish. So.
1: Uh, and is Irish her real last name? Yeah, it is. Really, Bridget Irish, Bridget born, on Saint Irish born in St. Patrick's Day. Great
2: performance Irish. Who arts.
1: now makes four-leaf clovers with her ass. That yeah. is a whole story right there.
2: But she, she was one of the people that really inspired me to chill the fuck out with this, like, right. you know, being a good art. Like, what the fuck does that mean? Or people who are constantly saying... You know, I need to take a class to be a photographer, and mm. I need to do this and that. And I'm thinking, you have a phone that's like yeah. more than two megapixels. Right, like you can make art. You can be an yeah, artist. There's a
1: movie that just came out recently, Tangerine. It's called. that was filmed completely on an iPhone. Love it. Yeah,
2: like accessibility. Like I think that there's a when you when you attach experience to privilege, you're instantly cutting mm. out a huge portion of the population, and right. you're making it. Um, you're basically telling people they can't be good enough, and so
1: yeah, privilege know. and consumerism. And you consumerism. need to buy all this shit, yeah. you know, and yeah, then and then people go buy it. It's like you know workout gear or whatever, and like that's not gonna make you in shape. But
2: going back to the scientific experiment of things, and again, I'm gonna forget. I'm very bad with names. This is mm. you know terrible. Um, the scientists who took baby chimps and made these like hard. Wire covered, oh, like the uh, like mothers. Harry
1: Harlow. Yeah, and they, they would get shocked if
2: coincide. they went to the uh, to the mother, right? And I'm sitting there like, why don't you talk to like any grandmother? Any and say, woman. Any woman. Yeah. Say, what happens when you have a, a, a baby that doesn't get what it needs? Like, yeah. what, let's talk about a family history. Like, who in the family didn't? You know, there yeah. there wasn't being paid attention to what happened. But we're sitting there trying to prove these things that like every mother, every parent who's who's yeah. really attentive already knows by by getting evidence in this sterile environment and torturing babies. Right? right? It's like yeah. what sick fuck was like? Let's torture some babies. To prove that baby torture sucks.
1: Well, hospitalism, yeah. right? You know about that? Mm-hmm. It's, uh, the early in the, after germs had been discovered, like in the late 19th, early 20th century, all these, like thousands of babies were dying because as soon as the baby was born, they put it in an incubator, so they a sterile didn't have a, incubator. A bio,
2: uh, well, yeah. they, they
1: didn't have the, the immunological right. training, but also they weren't getting touched. Right. And so right? they were failed
2: and to so thrive. So they died. Failed to thrive.
1: Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And all the nurses were like, this is crazy. Crazy! You can't put a baby in and in not touch it for two weeks, and the doctors, who were all men, were like, no, this blah, blah blah
2: blah." Yeah, <laughs> we're, we're saving their lives. Yeah, it's no, this, like, this is
1: better. Just uh, you know, I'm a trained physician. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really interesting how I mean oh, the deeper that, that I get process. into it. My,
2: my mother had uh, my two older sisters in twilight sleep, so she was asleep when she had her babies.
1: Twilight sleep? What's sleep? that?
2: Oh yeah, hmm. this is like a thing. Oh, is it, okay, there's another dollop episode about that. Another oh, dollop? I didn't even know that. Hey, uh, forget uh, Mad, tangentially Mad speaking. Yeah, go listen to the dollop. The dollop. <laughs> um, Mad Men, uh, one of the episodes of Mad Men where uh, January Jones' character has uh, a baby. It's in Twilight Sleep, and it's just so traumatizing to watch this
1: episode. Is that where she's just, like, completely anesthetized?
2: They actually gave them... Um, Oh, what's the date rape oh, drug? Ketamine? No.
1: Oh, GHB?
2: Rohipinol. Pro- ro- rohipinol or oh, something. Oh. So they basically just like knock these women out. Yeah. And the, the, your body does all the pushing for you. And yeah. then, like, you wake up at some point and you have a baby.
3: Oh.
2: And. It was really traumatizing for a yeah. lot of people because they weren't there to experience this birth and like the their, their bodies, you know, experience. They were having like trauma and
1: yeah. it was pretty dangerous. Well, apparently, um, uh, post uh, postpartum depression is much higher in women who deliver by C section, hmm. and one of the explanations is that the body thinks the baby died. Really? Yeah, because it doesn't go through the the hormonal surges of the birth process that sort of reset the, the woman in some ways. And there's all sorts of stuff. Like in this book, I'm writing about breast cancer rates are off the charts, right? And breast cancer is rarely detected in hunter-gatherers. Mm. And so you go back and you look, a hunter-gatherer woman might menstruate 50 times in her entire life.
3: Because... They're pregnant
1: because they're pregnant or they're breastfeeding and when they're breastfeeding their body fat contents very low so they don't ovulate and they breastfeed for three or four yeah three or four years per child right so you know you do the calculation A modern woman breast uh, menstruates 350 to 450 times in her life whereas a hunter-gatherer it's like 50 well
2: it's so interesting I mean I skip periods I'm on birth control I'm, I'm all about mm. the uh, like I, I want I want as a woman to have this like really spiritual experience with my period where like, I bleed with the moon and I'm like, you know, like, putting menstrual blood in my plants to feed them. And it's like this whole beautiful thing. Like, I want that to be my experience. It is not. I've never had a regular period. It drives me fucking crazy. I mean, my hormones are all over the place. So I discovered the wonder of birth control. And uh, now I get my period three times a year. And I'm like, awesome, skipping it. I have a job. I have to fly to New York. I have to be on set, skipping my period. Nice. And uh, and
1: you know that whole thing about having your period once a month, even when you're on the pill? Is all bullshit? There's no biological and was, reason I for that. I was really
2: freaked out when I started doing this. When I started skipping periods, I was like, "Man, am I? Am I? Is this going to be like an early death? Like whatever? It's it's worth the the you know <laughs> for me for my ir- totally irregular." Uh-huh. And so many women can relate to this when you have yeah. a regular cycle, just having coming to terms with the fact that, like, like you're crying at a fucking Kit Kat commercial, <laughs> and you're like, you don't have a calendar to be like, oh, well, it's that time of the month. You're uh, like, no, I must really just love. <laughs> like they're separating the Kit Kats. They're taking them away from each other, they're and they're together. And chewy. Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, it, yes, uh, I want a world where I'm just yeah. allowed to be that. Uh, ex- yeah. that emotional person but you know
1: well you see know, here's a, here's know, a case living. where you think you know people are told or, or led to believe right that the natural thing would be to have your period every month or whatever uh-huh. that's not the natural thing because nat- that's the, that, that's well, what the natural happens. thing is
2: to be pregnant all the time which sounds like my personal fucking habit. so <laughs> I mean like we're, we're definitely moving away from the natural and it's, it's done a lot for women yeah. to move away from the natural And that
1: well sense. not pregnant all the time breastfeeding
2: yeah, I mean, I you know maybe I should go to the SPCA and see if they have any puppies that you know, yeah. and just like wet nurse. Maybe that would keep me. That healthy.
1: would be good. Yeah. Um, yeah. But,
2: but really, like
1: little toothless. And puppies. I read
2: this about breastfeeding. You know, I want to say that um, Karen Pryor, who wrote the book "Don't Shoot the Dog," mm-hmm. uh, which is the kind of like the baseline training book for all animal trainers. Everybody reads "Don't Shoot the Dog" by Karen Pryor. She's the the mother of clicker training. You know, she, she worked with uh, um, a lot of these kind of, she she was with, I believe, SeaWorld mm. doing, you know, training with marine mammals and took that to to the, the average household. Mm. Um, and she wrote a book on breastfeeding when her daughter was pregnant. And I've gotten it for a couple of my friends. And I've tried to read it, but I'm... This is, sounds so cold. I love kids. I'm so disinterested. Like yeah. I was like, okay, no, whatever. But she does talk a little bit about how healthy <laughs> breastfeeding is and, yeah. you know, for your body and lower rates of breast cancer right. and all these things. Right. Um, it still doesn't convince me to have a child. No,
1: me either. Yeah, I'm a so, non-breeder.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm open to it. There, I, I could wake up one day and be like, "I need a baby," and like, that's great. I'm, I'm totally open to having that experience. It just hasn't happened yet, and I'm very satisfied with my the, schnoz,
1: the Yeah. Schnoz. Yeah, you ever heard uh, Sarah Silverman talk about that? Her okay. her bit on kids. She said uh, she does this whole thing where sure she's I like, you know, I love I love babies. They're so cute, and uh, but you know, then they become teenagers, and there's problems and the zits, and uh, uh, so um, I'm looking to adopt uh, terminal ill infants. <laughs>
2: <laughs> See, I'm like, I think, like, the, the tragedy of a teenager would be like, it'd be like having an interesting, like, a, like, fucking tragic play unfold in your home. It could be, it yeah. could be fascinating to me. Yeah. It's the, the, um, I think it's just the first five to ten years of... That dependency that I'm
1: just like, man, I, yeah. I'm just
2: figuring this out for myself.
1: And anything that wakes me up repeatedly <laughs> is going to be an enemy.
2: Well, and I've, I've done it with dogs. You know, I've had special needs animals that I've helped take care of. That was actually one of my first photo projects um, that I did, taking pictures of animals mm-hmm. outside of the zoo, was um, uh, taking pictures of like dogs in wheelchairs and stuff. Oh, I've seen some of I was of those. really yeah. interested, and I, was, and I interviewed the owners, and it was because yeah. I was like, are these people just dragging out the inevitable for some selfish reason? Right. Or do these people and animals have a really um, symbiotic uh, quality of life yeah. that works for them? And in most cases, it was that they were both very happy and and got something out of it.
1: Isn't, it, isn't love for animals a strange thing? I mean, no. l- love for anything is a strange thing in the sense that we... Locate it in the thing we love where is really almost all of it is projection.
2: But I don't I don't I think that's like the most natural thing. It's it's what like what is the fucking point of waking yeah. up and getting out of bed if we don't have lo- love and sex, right? These right. are these are the positive reinforcers. When you look at training, right. like these are the rewards that you get for performing the basic functions that lead us to like Poop and make dirt and contribute to the world or the planet or whatever. Contribute, yeah, yeah. contribute. Yeah. So uh, you know, however, we're contributing <laughs> right now to the planet. But,
1: what a lot of poop. Yeah,
2: <laughs> but I'm like, you know, like making dirt to give back to the earth, whatever. Yeah. Like yeah. every animal contributes in some way, and that's why we've evolved to be on this this rock or whatever. Yeah. Um But I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think I think that the the love part, and this is you know coming from this like, being a really like tough I was a tough kid I wanted Mm -hmm. to be I wanted to be really tough and really cool and Mm -hmm. very you know put a big wall up and all that stuff and like that's just so miserable and lonely yeah and then being like falling in love with things I think this is why you have crazy cat ladies and hoarders and you know it's this high you get from from falling in love
1: yeah, I, I sometimes read poetry on this podcast. Believe it or not, very highbrow. No, that is yeah, it's very high high brow. highbrow. Um, and last week, I read a poem called "The More Loving One" by W. H. Auden. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful, amazing poem, very interesting. But the, there's the, the sort of most famous line is, "If equal affection cannot be, let the more loving one be me." And That's
2: very s- selfish.
1: You know, that's that's the pivot of the of the whole poem is like, is that selfish? Well, I mean, you're joking, but it is because what he's saying is the experience of loving is what I'm really after here. That's what's so wonderful. And the experience of being love compared to that is nowhere near as fulfilling. And so that's what I'm saying about this but projection.
2: I, I, think, I think the experience of loving is, that's the high, that's the, the moment, that's the hit, right? Is like having those moments where you can let it wash over you. And then the experience of being loved is what creates a secure... Um, human being and a, and a positive self-image and all these things. Unless there's so think-
1: too much of it, which is stardom, right? Mm-hmm. You get someone, you know, George Clooney or somebody who's being loved by millions of people that he doesn't even know. Right. And there's that great, I always, I'm thinking, yeah, it's, uh, it's very weird. there's a book in this for me somewhere. I think yeah. my next book might be against love, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh you know, once I've finished with Sex and Civilization, I'll turn my... You'll
3: take love My and you'll disdain, just, you'll just
1: I'll spank it. Damn love. Spanking uh, love. That's a good title, love. actually. You um, can have a little otter on the cover. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about copyrights. Yeah. Uh, but I'm always thinking that Beatles song where he's singing, um, I need somebody to love, and then the chorus says, Can it be anybody... And he says, "I just need someone well, to love." You know,
2: even even having Doesn't fans, is interesting. it's interesting. Like, I'm I'm not a, a fan person. I don't fan out on people, and I have fans, and I you know I I sit back and I'm like, man, these are the people that are helping make the life I have possible. Sure. And so, like, that's a really interesting thing to sit with, and then. Tim, my husband, works in an industry that is exists on the backs of its fans. It's you know he's worked in comics for a long time, Mm -hmm. and now he works for this company Mondo that does these beautiful like limited edition uh, silkscreen like reimagined movie posters Mm with artists, and it's become very very popular over the last few years, and it's because of this collectorship that happens, because of this like the intimate moment with a movie or something that meant something to you or a a figure, you know, uh, in that movie. Uh, And it is really interesting because, again, like I think the more people experience like love or or, you know, maybe it is a false sense of intimacy, but I still think it makes them a better person.
1: And well, really yeah, and, and right? I'm not challenging that it's real love. No, but it is weird to me. But to have I'm challenge. So I'm away. questioning what love is because we uh, we always assume that it's this two way relationship that flows in both directions. But I'm fine. The more I think about it, there are more and more examples. Of something that is love. It is love. I mean, you love an infant. Like, maybe that's the deepest love that even exists, but that infant, like, it can't even focus its fucking eyes, you know? Yeah, it's yeah. just like, well, you're the thing that, you know, makes yeah, but me if, warm. Yeah, but
2: going back to those baby monkeys, like, if you are not giving that infant the experience of love, then, like, it ends up, like, eating people, right? right? Like, it's like right. a dark motherfucker. Yeah, yeah, it's like, yeah. it's fucked up. So... Um,
1: Oh, it's definitely necessary. I'll tell yeah. you a funny story, okay, that, that illustrates <laughs> yeah, this. Yeah. Fourth of July, a couple years ago, my parents live in L.A. They have this golden retriever. They went out to watch the fireworks. The golden retriever was in the backyard. Apparently, the explosions freaked her out. She jumped Jump the fence, the fence right? right? So she's gone. They come home. She's gone. They're freaking out. They're calling all the shelters and everything, putting up signs. Uh, a couple days later, they get a call from a shelter. Hey, you think we have your dog here? So they go down. There's the dog. The dog's so happy. They're happy. Everybody's happy. They take the dog home. They're in the backyard playing with the dog. My sister's boyfriend comes home, looks out the window and says, whose dog are they playing with? <laughs> it's not their dog.
3: They just wanted
2: to, <laughs> they wanted to believe that they have their dog It's a dog fucking
1: golden back. retriever, you know. And, and later my sister's like, yeah, well, I noticed that she didn't have the collar on that but we did. But they wanted to
2: see it. They
1: wanted to see their dog. And they were so happy. And they, the dog came in the house and immediately went into my mother's bedroom, which their dog knew never to do. Uh-huh. So there are all these clues that that's not your dog, yeah. right? But, no, when they're in the backyard, that relief they felt was real. Mm-hmm. The love they felt, the pleasure, everything they were feeling was sure, real. I'm
2: sure they, they'd love that dog whether, you know, if they, if they needed a new dog and they went to the shelter and picked out this dog, they, I would, mean, they would love it's it. it's
1: getting old now. They eventually did find the real dog. So and they,
2: they kept both dogs. no. What the fu- I know your parents are fucked up. I'm sorry, man. Like that's that, like let's let's talk about why you're writing these books and questioning love.
3: Your parents get this dog. They get this love. I know. And,
1: and then again, it's like, hey, out. we're gonna go it's for a ride. And the dog's like, what? oh, I'm going for a ride. I
2: know. Oh, I want to make. I, I want to like find that dog. I want to take that dog in. I want to like take a picture and send it to your parents and be like, what the fuck? Um,
1: it's true. I that, agree that
2: might you. be the darkest. Thing I've ever heard in my life.
1: Uh, Uh, It's true. uh, My my father's relationship with the dog is a source of great pain for me, I have to tell you. Yeah.
2: Well, that's interesting. I think, you know, I was just back visiting my parents and mm -hmm. seeing their dog and just how completely. Unrestrained. This dog has had no training, and my, 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 you know, my dad's looking at it and saying, "She's the greatest dog on the planet." And I'm thinking, "Oh, I can really figure out all my shit just by looking at this this dog," you know. Well, my my
1: father's dog um, life uh, sort of revolves around sitting in a dark room, Hmm. sitting uh, next to my father on a in a chair watching television. a walk is like go out in the backyard take a shit and come back in
2: there's just no no experience
1: that's it you know and it kills me yeah. it kills me cuz you know i'm i'm like you in the sense that i love animals and i want them to have an interesting life
3: well
2: and i think but i think that's also an interesting projection because Here's, like, animals, right? Like, do animals want to be out in the wild? Kind of, like, yeah, I believe that in a lot of cases they want to be doing what they would be doing. They want to run. They they do, but, like, animals are also, like, dogs can be very domesticated. Yeah. Cats can be very domesticated. I know that, um, you know, working around a lot of animal rescues, there are animals that come into rescue, and the, the ideal placement is a home that's very quiet, that has a very simple routine, where the animals go out, they're fed, they have somebody with them, they don't have to be left alone, and there are animals, um, Laurel Braitman, who's a friend of mine, she just wrote a book called Animal Madness last year, mm. and it discusses like mental illness in animals. Like she had a so dog that had such bad separation anxiety uh-huh. that it broke through a fucking window in the second story of her home and fell to the fucking ground. What? Because it was so, it so hated being without its people. Um, So, and this is not, dogs with severe separation anxiety are common. He had really bad separation anxiety. When he came to me, his owner actually had Alzheimer's Mm. um, and had to go into assisted living, which is how I ended up with him. And he was used to somebody being there all the time and sitting around with them.
1: They're pack animals.
2: They're pack animals. And so, you know, especially... Older dogs, dogs that have separation issues. Some dogs are lazy. I mean, if you've ever hung out with like, I'm trying to think of some of the breeds I've seen do this. Uh, bull Terriers, I've seen Basset Hounds do it. You try to take a dog on a walk and they just stop walking, you're like, you know, you're not broken. You're not in pain.
1: You're not a panda. Not, and Get up. You're not
2: a panda, yeah. You, you know how to do this. One foot in front of the other. And. They just don't fucking want to. Just like some people are like, I don't want to. Yeah. So, yes, I think that, you know, there is... You don't, You want to You want to see an animal run and be an experience. Well,
1: and also this, you know, animal madness. Every time I go to visit and I see this dog, the dog just looks at me like, dude, get, get, me, me, out out get yeah. me out of here. Get me out of here. Get me out of here. Please. Do, I you got got
2: ever take, do you ever do that when you're home? Well, you see, this
1: is the problem I used to. In yeah. fact, I used to take her to this park and let her off the leash and throw the ball. And she'd come. She and she was smart. It. You know, yeah. she's a golden retriever. She's like got that, like, I want to please attitude. And
2: they're sure it's the right one this time. <laughs>
1: Well, at some point, maybe it's the wrong dog, but at some point uh, I took her to that same park and she just like would lose her shit anytime another dog was anywhere near her. Like just Mm -hmm. freaking out and spinning and you know, insanity. Like she 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 lost lost her her fucking marbles, yeah, yeah. yeah. So now I I, now I'm just like you know I'm ashamed actually to that it's true, but it's true. I see her and I'm just like no, can't deal with you. Sorry, sorry, I can't. Yeah, that's really
2: sad. That is that is a really hard predicament. What do you do? Yeah, I mean, and
1: and And my dad loves this dog. Yeah, loves her like to a creepy extent. He calls her baby. Yeah, Yeah, it's his baby. You know, she's gonna die soon, and that's gonna be a really big deal unless we just swap her out. And maybe he won't notice. A
2: couple years younger. Well, swap
1: and, her out with like a. I think I want to swap her out with a small dog. Oh yeah. Like maybe if if he really loses focus. He well,
2: <laughs> I think, and that's the thing. Like there are dogs that like they want to be fucking lap dogs. Yeah, like, but, like that's it. Retreat, get a little but dog. a pretty athletic breed. Exactly.
1: You know? They um, they want to do. People their get thing. into this
2: breed thing. You know, it's it's interesting. People get into this. I need a bulldog. I need
1: like a fashion accessory. A,
2: they they see these a dogs husky. and they're like, and like a husky. Okay, you want to talk about a breed that is just like a, and you 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 want a lot of experience. If you're getting a husky, you have a yeah. dog that's like going to be wild. reactive. Yeah. it needs a lot of outdoor space, but it can't be just left alone because they'll they'll disappear. Yeah. Um, and you know, again, these are these are all broad sweeps of the. dream. Sure. There's someone thinking, oh no, I had a husky. It was the greatest dog. Like that's cool, but yeah. you know, when when you have somebody put in an application for a dog, like say in rescue, it's just something about like, my friend Amanda runs this rescue, Panda Paws Rescue, in Vancouver, uh, Washington, and she does a lot of special needs rescue, and she gets people who send in these applications, and they say. Or she'll have a litter of puppies. So they'll say, I want that dog. I want the one that's coat looks like this. Right. And she, her response is always, you send in your application. I'll tell you what dog's right for you. Right. If you want it, you take that dog. If you're thinking it has to look like a certain way, I, I probably don't want you adopting one of the dogs that right. I'm taking care of. Cause like Good. You're not th- you're not thinking straight. Right. You're thinking fashion accessory. Right. Um, you know I foster dalmatians dogs occasionally. Dalmatians are crazy.
1: But and every year the fucking movie comes out again, and, the then, cris- people and then people want and-,
2: and then like they they're yeah. like I don't want a pit bull, but I want a dalmatian, <laughs> and like little do you know that more people you know per capita get you know yeah. attacked by their crazy and dalmatians collies, that are right? super inbred. Well, collies, collies uh you know have that the tiny head thing. Yeah. But they're 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 cool dogs. But, you know?
1: the, but they're more likely to be bit by a collie than any other breed. I think. Well,
2: yeah. Well, well, herding dogs because they're bred to nip at things. Right. Like their job is to herd animals right. and one of the tools at their disposal is to like nip at their ankles yeah. basically. Yeah. So, you know, if you're like, you have a bunch of kids and you're like, I need to get this shit under control. You just get an Australian <laughs> Shepherd and they'll just like nip at your
1: children. <laughs> Keep them grouped but, up yeah, nice and tight. yeah, I mean tight. people
2: really get these, it's like, it's it's that star appeal. It's that, yeah. you know, the superficiality of the human experience
3: yeah.
2: where, you know, I, I was fostering, I fostered this super cool pit bull um, again, with panda paws that needed its front legs removed, and it was in a wheelchair. And I taught it how to use its wheelchair, and it was like it was a really amazing experience. But I was also like, this isn't my fucking dog. No, this dog had like fans and people saying like, how could you not keep the dog? Like, like what? Why would you ever do that? And I'm like, well, because I, I like this dog. Like, this dog's my friend, but like he's not he's not a good fit in my household. Like, mm. we're not family. Yeah. You know, and I've had people, oh, well you had this dog that was like famous. Like it had like, you were getting like attention, like why why would you let it go? Yeah. And like, it wasn't my dog. We Mm -hmm. found a great home for this dog. We found a woman who was a runner, who wanted nothing more than to go out with that dog and, (laughs) my cat destroying her things, and exercise that dog and, you know, put it in a little baby carriage and run around with it. Yeah. And it was a great fit. But, uh, and, and, you know, I think that's an interesting thing about fostering, taking animals in, you know, and I, people do it with humans and kids yeah. and um, humans with children. <laughs> <laughs> you like that? How sterile I made Human that?
1: Human, young.
2: But <laughs> you, you start to realize that, like, it's not yeah. your job to, to be best friends with everything. You know, you can provide a safe space and still have, like, a, um, like, you know what, this is, this is my... Dog to take care of and to help train, but it's not my dog.
1: Well, I mean, I I think what you're doing is you're acknowledging an authentic relationship.
2: Well, it is. This is the same thing that
1: arises from the two of you, not you saying, "I need a black and white dog because they're cute." Because they're cute. Well, and this is
2: another question I get asked all the time, and I know anybody who works with animals can relate to this. And it's the, "What's your favorite breed?" or "What's your favorite kind of animal?" and the answer is, whoever's not a jerk, you know? I like
1: that valley girl accent you went into there.
2: Like, oh, what's your favorite animal? <laughs> Do you love puppies or kittens? But, yeah. no, it's like you you get you bond with, like, the weirdest... When you're working around a lot of different animals, it's like I, I had this amazing experience with... Um, a barn owl. Mm. I've, I was really moved by a, a rhino that was at
1: the zoo. What happened with the barn owl?
2: The barn owl... Um,
1: so you are shooting it?
2: No, I, were, I was working with it. I was oh. literally doing you know flight shows you see at zoos where you oh, have right. the animals fly around. Right. Like I was training it. Really? Training
1: show. an owl? I don't think I've ever seen a Got trained owl. I
2: gauntlet. I had this cool leather gauntlet. I would oh. hold these birds. Birds were we- I've worked with every Owls kind of animal. Owls are cool. Birds are the most terrifying animals to work with. They can't really hurt you they're they're well, essentially their pretty talons tiny. They are are, pretty... they're tough but like they're just dinosaurs like they, yeah. they are just like killing machines but owls are a little slow like everybody you know the wise old owl thing well owls brains <laughs> are smaller than their eyeballs so in the grand uh... you know in working with raptors in my limited experience in this owls are not the smartest of the birds uh... by a long shot but this owl was so funny and I learned a lot about working with birds with this owl. Socrates was his name. Real real thinker. Wise, yeah. Real thinker, that yeah. one. Um, but he actually... Uh, would he would eat vegetables which was so weird and they, they have these weird castings because they cast up whatever they can't digest so we'd find like tomatoes and corn
1: and mouse bones <laughs> you could top us you could sell that here in Portland you, could. you know you could. like they've got that coffee that goes through the the goats the, or the ferrets or whatever it is <laughs> in, in Indonesia <laughs>
2: I think it's goats in Africa, but Paris oh, really? in Indonesia. No,
1: there's, there's some sort of like super expensive coffee, right, and
2: they pick it out or of their. Civets, t- civets. oh, it's a sip. So civets yeah. aren't. Uh, they actually are a weasel family, though. They're I not cats. So. Yeah, yeah.
3: Yeah,
2: yeah they're, so the civets are eating the the coffee and then they're shitting it out and they're picking the and
1: they're picking it and those people better it's super get smooth. paid well
2: that's all i have to say for you to enjoy that smooth cup of coffee like
1: yeah
3: what
2: is it uh david cross's piece on eating gold leafing like i love the, that piece where it's like oh look like this child is like fucking like dying to make you this gold and then you eat it and like shit it out like,
1: yeah and you don't even collect the shit
2: no you just shit it out you're just flushing that gold down the toilet yeah. so like like, I just, I feel like there should be, there should be, like, a, a reality show where people who consume this shit, like, these, these super fancy things, have to, like, spend a day hanging out with the people who are, like, actually harvesting it yeah.
1: and it. Wouldn't
2: that be a Like cool that, you
1: know that Michael Pollan book, The Omnivore's Dilemma? Yeah, sure. Where he has to, like, he makes it his project to, to sort of go to the source of everything he eats in one day. Do the same thing, but, like, for, you know, Henry Kissinger, <laughs> you know, like everything he ate in one day, drag Henry Kissinger, like Through. look at this, and like yeah. you know, make him hold his head and make him look at where his gold leafing comes from. I like that, that. bastard.
2: You just see him flopping around, like talk breakfast.
1: about jowls. Yeah. yeah, Kissinger drool all over the place. Mm. So, what kind of photography were you doing before you did this? Because now uh, this is your gig, right? Is, I mean, now you're yeah, an like, animal photographer. I
2: mean, it's, it's so interesting to be, like, an animal photographer, right? I mean, I'm going with it. I feel like if you have a niche and you can make a living at it, um, I like the idea of being an artist for the emotional and spiritual fulfillment, but I also think, like you have to make some fucking money right unless you have like a trust fund and you get to be like an artist or you're like just batshit crazy and you're like you know like I'm making art to live and I live in a box like whatever like not my scene I like to I like to eat uh
1: Gold leafing. Gold leaf when possible, uh, yeah. All the coffee very that nutritious. came out of civet
2: butts. Yeah. It's my thing. Um, I
1: have a civet in a cage. I just feed it the coffee. <laughs> feed it
2: the coffee. It's There's like, a little dispenser at the It's bottom. like a grinder
1: <laughs> attached to the back of the civet. Um, yeah, so I see you've got Edward Weston. You've you got some, were you doing landsta- landscape landscapes. I stuff actually
3: did
2: a lot of landscape stuff. Really? Uh, I, I've driven across the country, it's like,
1: six times. Really? Wow. I just, like,
2: kind of lived out of a car before nice. it was cool. Or like after it was cool, I don't know, like
1: like somewhere between cool and homelessness. Yeah, totally. The
2: starting one right before I turned eighteen was the first time I did it with a couple of friends, and we were in this little old Honda Civic, and like the air conditioning, like there was no AC, and we had to keep the heat on, and it was August in the middle of the desert, and we
1: were like (laughs) breaking windows out of
2: it, and like um, (laughs) it it overheated, we had to like you know pour water in it all the time. That car. when we got we finally got to chicago and got out of the car and i remember looking at it and all the you could see all the silver wheel well things and the, the tires we were like oh how did we not blow out on the highway and die because all the rubber had rubbed
1: <laughs> oh the, the belts yeah. the belts right yeah
2: um but this car was such a piece of shit and we had so much fun we were we would wait at the exit for the national parks we had no money we spent all our money on gas we waited at the exit at the parks and we'd take... It used to be that you just got a little receipt and you put it in your window and that was proof that you paid to go into the parks. So you could and oh, go
1: for right. a certain
2: number of days.
1: So and you'd then, hit someone up coming out? Yeah,
2: we'd hit, we had a little yeah. sign that I found recently. That was <laughs> oh, like a really? like, postcard of like surfer dudes' butts that just said like, give us your park pass. <laughs> and, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I started doing these trips and just being so blown away by natural beauty that I would, you know drag myself up and out of a tent and I had a little six by six um camera uh, uh holga mm. no not a holga that's the little plasticky ones
1: so shooting on oh, film Veronica
2: yeah six by six which film. is
1: expensive
2: yeah but that was the only option then I mean this yeah. was before digital so yeah. well,
1: you um, could have gone Kodachrome 64 National Geographic Standard
2: yeah, I wasn't that smart. I yeah. wanted to just feel artsy. But, mm-hmm. like you know, I'd be, like, loading this medium format film in the desert, in the cold, and, like, you know, with, like, those, like, pawing of things, you yeah. know, like. Um,
1: you know Galen to... Rowell's work? Mm-mm. He's Galen Rowe was amazing. He he's he was a mountain climber, world class mountain climber, and wonderful photographer. He shot for National Jew. You've seen some of his stuff. I'm sure, like yeah. there's one where the Potola Palace in Tibet, and there's a rainbow coming straight down yeah, into it. That sure. shot, that's Favious, him. Famous yeah, shots.
2: I get, like my name retention is is yeah.
1: laughable. So. Well, he died in a plane crash, uh, young. He was probably 45 or something. But he was like the. You know the Ansel Adams of color photography. Ansel Adams, um, but he wrote this beautiful book called um, Mountain Light, I think it's called. And it's his father. There was I don't know if he's still alive. Was a um, uh, physicist at Berkeley, and so he grew up in this very scientific mindset. And but he became a photographer. But this book is amazing because each there's one page that's the photo, and then the other page is uh, all text and it's large format and it's talking about where he was what time of day that you know like mm-hmm. getting up before dawn so you so could you get there the and you light. could be there yeah sure you know and then there's like all this stuff about how the human eye the range that we can see is much wider than what a camera, camera can, can pick see. up so you're always compensating to see through you have to imagine what the camera's seeing here and mm-hmm. I mean there's all this really great stuff I love that book I'm
2: fine. now I'm going to have to look at
1: Mountain up. Light Galen Rowell. yeah I, I mentioned these things because a lot of people listening like to jump on stuff
2: yeah for me it was it was it's always been very about it's selfish it's therapeutic you know making art I think I looked less to you know and that's not to say that I'm not looking at you know just reading these books off what I have sitting here Elliot Irwin or Irwitt Elliot Irwitt Robert Bale Robert Bale Roger Balin you like that I can get this. I can
1: read. (laughs) I can read.
2: I can remember names. But
1: you're reading from a distance, so it's hard. And I I should be
2: wearing glasses. And Weston.
1: And so you've got what? Two books, or one book?
2: I've got three books. Three books. Three books. I have.
1: What are the books? Shake. Shake. Shake cats.
2: Shake cats and shake puppies, of course.
1: And shake puppies. Are you going to do a a shake? A shake like Henry Kissinger book? Yeah. Shake diplomats. Shake,
2: shake diplomats. It, <laughs> shake diplomats. But it would, it would, it would fat white just people. show the people, like whoever wants to shake them the most, would get to shake them. They'd oh, also be in the photo. That would be great. be great.
1: You could get Joe Rogan shaking people.
2: Oh, be, you know. But he'd it, get
1: them moving.
2: I bet. I bet we could get some like fighters, just like, like just punches, like like people just oh, letting themselves famous, get punched, right? Yeah, the so it sweat could be a whole blowing series off. Of like, like you're gonna get you're going to take a punch and yeah. it's going to get, you know...
1: But then you miss the shot and you're like, can we do that again? Sorry, I, I wasn't quite ready. That yeah. would suck. That I would mean, really that suck. Was,
2: you don't miss the shot.
1: Yeah. You don't miss
2: the... If you if I miss the shot as a photographer, I have to get punched. That's my punishment. So it would, oh. it would be very... Again,
1: but training. But then the, the project's over. You know, you get punched too many times. That's, you're
2: not giving me enough credit.
1: Well, <laughs> for taking a punch or not fucking up the shot? Maybe both. <laughs> One or the other, yeah. Um... Yeah. Well, I'm really proud. I just got nominated for an AVN award. Oh, wow. Do you know what that is? That's,
2: yes, I've been hearing about these lately. Okay, tell, remind me what it is. Uh,
1: adult video. I don't know what the N stands for, but it's like the Oscars of porn.
2: This is amazing.
1: I was nominated for a non-sex role. Performance or non-sex performance, I think, is my category. The categories themselves are hilarious. There's, you know, like the MILF sure. and the girl-on-girl girl and the best blowjob, and and then there's my category, which is best non-sex performance.
2: So, what was your performance?
1: I had a cameo in this uh, movie called Marriage 2.0, which uh-huh. is like a sort of a. Porn movie that's trying to be mainstream as well. So it's got plot and it's well shot. I I I
2: worked at a porn shop for a while, so...
1: All right. Well, check it out. Marriage 2.0, baby. I'm in there at playing myself
2: winning awards
1: well nominated I'm Nominating, just a nominee but it's it's on like my it's resume already, already. yeah amazing, yeah you know? so I was just thinking maybe there's some sort of a shake project in porn for you I'm not yeah, sure Yeah I
2: mean I think it's funny you know this is one of those one of the the series of crazy dead end jobs I had before I knew I was going to be a world class <laughs> animal photographer <laughs> Kids, get out your phones. <laughs> how do I become? How do oh. I become a pet photographer? Yeah, um, yeah. I worked. I worked at a truck stock porn shop, like oh. straight up, like right off of I five in Olympia, Washington. So this was a high class it was prime, establishment, prime
1: location. Yeah, there was yeah. carpeting
2: there. Carpeting video booths. Wow. Everything. uh,
1: Not carpeting in the video booths, I hope.
2: Way too close to them to be comfortable. I mean, that building, the building that it was in when I started working there, actually got burned down by the fire department in a controlled burn, like a learning, like a fire department classroom because nobody wanted it after they moved out into a building just like right next door.
1: (laughs) Controlled burn is a good phrase. Controlled burn. I want to use that somewhere. Controlled
2: porn shop burn.
1: (laughs) Controlled porn burn. Yeah. Yeah.
2: You don't want to be downwind of that. Nice. Um, But... I don't know how the fuck we got onto this subject.
1: Well, I was bragging about my award. Oh, I was thinking about various places you could take the shake concept.
2: Right. And I think, um, you know, after working in that environment for so long, so long, a couple of years, uh, I was just like, I think about the human body. It's so funny, like, the, the line between art and porn. Mm. and, like, what what it takes to, yeah. to convince somebody that something's one or the other and how we really need to hold on to the idea that something's one or the other.
1: It, yeah. I mean, it, it's sort of, like, do you know who Friends Duvall is? No. He's a primatologist. He's sort of responsible for bringing bonobos to the world. Is
5: he
2: the one who has, uh, who was like raising the bonobo that like plays piano and stuff?
1: Mm -mm. No, he's he's an academic. He's written a bunch of books um, about bonobos. He he wrote one recently called "The Bonobo and the Atheist." It's about the morality, Mm -hmm. the, the biological basis of morality, and other primates. Very interesting guy. Uh, he told me a great story. He was, I mean, he spent a lot of time with bonobos. He's Dutch.
2: Uh, he, oh, of course then.
1: Yeah. <laughs> he would be. I mean,
2: Peace Nick. The Dutch and the bonobos. Uh,
1: but he was with these bonobos in, in Holland when he was a graduate student. And, uh, and then he came to America. And now he's the head of the Yerkes Primate Center at Emory University <laughs> in Atlanta. But anyway, he went back to... Um, to Holland not too long ago, and there was a bonobo there who he had known as a baby, and she recognized him, and now she's an old lady, old, old female. And she reached out through the cage to him, and he went over, and you know, you, you don't want to get too close because they're very strong. You know? <laughs> But in this case, you know, there was this connection and he went up to the cage and she put her hand on the back of his head and pulled him in and gave him a tongue kiss.
2: Oh, my God, that's amazing. And
1: he was like, when a bonobo has you by the head. You You just go with it. You don't want to insult them. Yeah, definitely not.
2: (laughs) He's a guest at her
1: home. Yeah. But anyway, uh, the reason I was reminded of him was. What you just said something, oh porn, uh, the, porn difference, and the difference right right
2: and like science. And yeah
1: all these. Well, that, and this will tell you how my mind works. So it reminded me of when I asked him on this podcast, like, you know, well, what is a species? You know, do we really know that bonobos and chimps can't have fertile offspring? Right? Do we know that you know could can humans they? make? Could they
2: have fertile offspring? Do they know that?
1: Well, they don't know that bonobos and chimps can't, and they think humans and other primates can't because there's like a different number of chromosomes, right. so they wouldn't align but properly. But
2: like you know, tigers and lions can have you know non-fertile
1: offspring. Right, but that I think the the species definition, the sort of most used one, is that they, the, uh, if they have offspring, it's not fertile. Right, if it that's, is, that's pretty it,
2: common, yeah. like when you have, yeah.
1: Yeah, but he said to me like, oh, never ask a biologist what a species is. Like that's the basis of the entire science, but nobody really, nobody agrees, really on agrees on what the definition is. Huh. So what's the difference, you know, what is porn or art? So it's like, oh, come on, we're acting like they're two things, there's obviously overlap. Right, And it's
2: they're, very they're subjective. stimulating. Yeah.
1: It's whatever's stimulating, right? Yeah, yeah. All right, listen, I don't want to take up your whole day here. <laughs>
2: did we, what did we just talk about? Did we talk about photography at all? We
1: Very talked, little because you're so damn it. interesting. Like, we I kept thinking, you know, I want to ask her how she got into photography and, you know, different influences and all that, but we end up, like, talking just about talking. so much stuff. Yeah. And it's great.
2: Okay,
1: cool. I mean, that's, that's the, what I love about this podcast. Like, <laughs> it is what it is.
2: If, I feel like it's like a Sunday afternoon kind of yeah. thing. Well, there should happening. be
1: football playing in the background.
2: Is that what you was associate with us in America
1: in America yeah I normally live in Spain where it's soccer yeah so
2: you live in Spain
1: yeah most of the time we've been in the states for football soccer four years yeah I mean I live in Barcelona so it's soccer capital of high quality soccer yeah, they're they're fantastic. Well, now we have Vizca Timbers. Barça. Huh? the Timbers. The
2: Timbers, there. The
1: Timbers, and like you're into it here in Portland. The crowd, the crowd. I went to a Timbers game. The crowd was way more into it than in Barcelona. Yeah, but
2: it's only since they became an MLS team. Because before mm. they were MLS, you could walk into the, you know, the stadium and get tickets. And, really? Yeah.
1: And so, what's the difference? Uh, I mean, what were they before they were MLS?
2: They were, I don't know what the, the you know, before Major League what you are, um, but, like, they were just, like, a local team.
1: So they're, like, on TV more now, maybe? They have a better...
2: They're, they're playing all the major MLS. I think better. there's that push to make Major League Soccer, like, a thing in the yeah. U.S., right? They, yeah. They bought, the L.A. bought Beckham for a couple million dollars yeah. or whatever contract.
1: Beckham. I, I never understood beckham and also like he's the sexiest guy in the world have you ever heard him talk no is he's it a really like... high weird voice <laughs> he's like yeah david beckham
2: maybe that there. maybe that adds to his sexual appeal because he's not intimidating <laughs> he's like a panda <laughs> that's
1: good wrap it up with the pandas. okay ladies and gentlemen make sure you buy these books they're fantastic uh makes a great christmas gift very, huh? Yeah,
2: Hanukkah,
1: Hanukkah, uh, all the holidays, whatever, all those
2: holidays. What's the someone's black one, down? The,
1: the African one,
2: Kwanzaa?
1: Kwanzaa, great Kwanzaa gift.
2: Yeah, if if you know someone's just really sad and you just want to make them happy, yeah, get, make make exactly. me some money, right? It's, buy this it's book.
1: yeah, it's like the all the good qualities of those silly YouTube videos, but with art added to it. An
2: old fashioned style on quality
1: paper. on paper. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Beautiful moments captured. Thank you for doing this. Yeah, thank you. I hope you enjoyed that conversation and appreciate your support for the podcast, especially those of you who do it through fundwhatyoulove.com com, where you can set it up to take a buck, five bucks, ten bucks, whatever you can afford, whatever you feel motivated to throw at the podcast every month. Uh, you don't have to think about it. It's an ongoing thing. You can cancel it any time, of course. That's fundwhatyoulove.com. That's run by Danny osman who also does the sound engineering for the show. You can find him at emeraldcitypro.com if you have any engineering, sound engineering needs. He's great. I vouch for him, of course. He's been doing the sound engineering for this podcast for over a year now. Completely voluntarily. Uh, he's a cool guy. So if you have any business you want to throw his way, please do. Thanks to Basin and Range for the opening music. You can find them at basinandrangeband.com. Uh, there's a Reddit Tangentially Speaking discussion group. If you want to talk about episodes, throw a question at me, and get a conversation started at Reddit. Just do a search for Tangentially Speaking, all one word. And of course, thanks to Bennett at Shore Design T-Shirts, another guy who's been supporting this podcast from the very beginning when I had about 15 listeners. He was there. He's still there. And uh, I love him. Never met the guy, but I love him. And I sure as hell love his shirts. So you can get his shirts at dot shirtscom And of course, all the shirts that are at ChrisRyanPhD.com are made by Shore Design T-Shirts in Thailand and packaged and shipped to you by my mom, Julie. Uh, say hi to Julie if you order anything she loves it when that happens and of course last but not least thanks to Carsey Blanton for the song you're about to hear Smoke Alarm which reminds you to carpe fucking diem because you're gonna die one day
4: he said baby what's a big deal feel what you wanna feel say what you wanna say you're gonna die one day for a headstone, I don't wanna give the end away, but we're gonna die one day. Your body is an animal doesn't ask for much. A little music and a soft touch. Why don't you let it out to play? Your heart is in a birdcage singing in